and welcome back to Hey Look Listen, my name is Liam Sheehan. Final Fantasy, what a concept. The original Final Fantasy came out on the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1987. It was made by Squaresoft and was the brainchild of one Hironobu Sakaguchi. And the story goes that the reason why it's called Final Fantasy is because this was uh, this was his last shot. Uh, Squaresoft games, um, his games in particular, weren't making money. So he was kind of given an ultimatum. This is your last chance. And he was like, okay, this is my final fantasy. And for his uh, last shot, he decided to make a JRPG, which um, stands for a Japanese role-playing game. And this was already an established genre, mainly due to the Dragon Quest games, which um, were super popular in Japan at the time. Like a lot of games and like a lot of game genres, you can trace uh, JRPGs back to the 70s, back to Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons influenced a lot of Western games at the time, like Wizardry and Ultima, um, birthed the role-playing game genre, which had you uh, creating a character or whatever with stats and um, doing some fantasy nonsense. And um, that kind of, over time, got translated into Japan and, uh, and became the JRPG genre, which um, genre names in games are kind of terrible and confusing and pointless but uh over time the 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 term japanese role-playing game as a genre kind of came to define different things than what the non-japanese role-playing game genre just the role-playing game genre came to represent but i think a a nice way to look at it is that um the jrpg was kind of birthed out of streamlining uh the the role-playing game there was it was still stat based and you were fighting monsters, you were going to towns, you were talking to villagers, you were buying things. But it was much more kind of light and story driven, um, the, the JRPG genre. And a few of them came out back in those early days in the 80s. Um, Dragon Quest, like I said, was the big one that became an institution in Japan, still is. There was other ones, Sega's Fantasy Star, um, Shin Megami Tensei. But I'm here to talk about Final Fantasy uh, from Squaresoft and... Obviously, many people will know probably the most notable thing about Final Fantasy was um, all those examples that I mentioned there, they live on to this day. None of them are dead franchises, but um, Final Fantasy was really the one that not only did it get big in Japan, not quite Dragon Quest big, but not only did it get big in Japan, but it um, but it broke into the West too. It was really the first JRPG to get big in America. Final Fantasy 1 was a, a big hit on the, the NES and then, um, then it got weird after that Final Fantasy 2 wasn't released in the West, and then Final Fantasy 3 wasn't released in the West. And then Final Fantasy 4 for the Super Nintendo was released in the West, but it was called Final Fantasy 2. And then Final Fantasy 5 wasn't released in the West. And then Final Fantasy 6 was called Final Fantasy 3 in the West, and yeah, I got, gotta stop doing that bit. But then that all changed um, with the seventh entry in the franchise, where they got rid of all this different numbered names in different um, locations. Final Fantasy VII came out in the PS1 and that was a huge deal. And it was a huge deal for me because that was my entrance into this um, franchise. Um, And it was for a lot of people um, for a number of reasons. For me, one of the main ones was as as an Irishman living in Europe, Final Fantasy VII was the first Final Fantasy game to come out in Europe. But it was also just a kind of a timing thing. This was a huge event both in terms of where games were graphically um, and in terms of... um, interactive narratives Final Fantasy VII was in the forefront of all that and I have a previous episode I recorded for Hey Look Listen uh, called The Path to the PlayStation where I kind of cover this and also we have a previous episode to that all about Final Fantasy VII if people would like to listen to that but I um, 
love Final Fantasy. I always have, and kind of loving Final Fantasy is is a strange thing. It's a half adoration, and sometimes it's half mild embarrassment about about the whole thing, to be honest. But I want to do an episode about Final Fantasy. Um, I want to do the the length and breadth of the franchise, and what better way to kind of deep dive than rank the games? So that's what I'm going to do. It's always interesting to talk about a games franchise that's been around as long as Final Fantasy has, that's been through so many different eras of the game industry and how um, things change graphically and how genres evolve or devolve depending on your perspective. But um, Final Fantasy has been with me since I was uh, nine years old. And yeah, like I said, I'm going to rank all the Final Fantasy games. No, shut myself up. Definitely not all of them. There are 15 main Final Fantasy games. Uh, which I will um, refer to as the numbered Final Fantasy games. And then, of course, there's a litany of spin-offs over the years, and I'm not going not gonna to be doing that. Uh, I'm going to deal with the main 15 Final Fantasy games. But no, shut me up again. I'm actually not. I'm going to step all over my own credibility immediately. Um, my kind of journey through the years with the Final Fantasy series is um, kind of... I'm, I'm a single-player gaming guy. I <laughs> I treat games like I treat reading a good book or sobbing just something you do alone so there are two main numbered Final Fantasy games that I will not be putting in my ranking 11 and 14 because they are massively multiplayer online RPGs they're multiplayer experiences and I have nothing I'm fascinated by these games but I just haven't played them I you know when you get to a certain age you just have to you just have to realize that some games just aren't for you and you gotta play what you love and I just have very little interest in playing massively multiplayer online RPGs personally I miss the whole World of Warcraft craze I was you know alone somewhere but like I said um, no ill will towards them I'm very fascinated by them I remember Final Fantasy 11 coming out in the early 2000s and it was like a huge deal but particularly I'm very interested in Final Fantasy 14 which came out and was crap it was everyone hated it it was like half done half baked and everyone was like oh my god what is this so it kind of was quietly shelved and then they released a new version of it final fantasy 14 a realm reborn and this rebirth was um given to hiroshi takai and he handled all that and subsequently became square enix's best boy and he's been handed the keys to final fantasy 16 the next uh, single player entering the series but like I said, I won't be covering those those two because if I did, if I ranked them with all the other ones, I'd just be kind of doing it through things that I've read and things that I know about the game. And I wouldn't be doing it from the heart. It wouldn't be genuine. But I'm not going to just rank 13 Final Fantasy games instead. What I'm going to do strategically is I'm going to remove Final Fantasy 11 and 14 and I'm going to replace them with two Final Fantasy spin-offs of my choice. Therefore, transforming this list into a, a misshapen thing altogether. But my justification is I'm going to choose two games that are um, tied to the other numbered Final Fantasy games. And there are a few games that are, but I'm just going to choose two. And Because if I was to choose from any of the Final Fantasy spin-offs games, quote-unquote, I think if any of them deserve to be kind of inserted into the main Final Fantasy franchise, it would be Final Fantasy Tactics. But I'm going to stick to this arbitrary rule I've made myself. I'm going to choose two games that are tied to the games that are already in this list of the other numbered games and the two games i'm going to slot in is final fantasy 10 2 
the cumbersomely titled um, direct sequel to Final Fantasy X because that's the thing about the Final Fantasy series they're all brand new stories brand new worlds they don't link to each other in an, any narrative way but Final Fantasy X 2 did it was a direct sequel to Final Fantasy X and there's a there's a few other sequels uh, Final Fantasy 7 had a whole prequel sequel franchise built around it that jumped into different mediums Final Fantasy 13 had two sequels uh, Final Fantasy 12 had a weird sequel on the DS. Final Fantasy 4 had a prequel. But no, forget all that. I'm choosing Final Fantasy 10 2. It's the one I want to talk about the most. And the other game I'm going to slot into this list is the Final Fantasy 7 remake, uh, the, the most recent Final Fantasy game. Because even though that's a remake, it's such its own thing. It's a, almost like a, a whole different genre, very different feel, and it came out in a very different time. So yeah, I think it deserves to be isolated and um, analyzed. Um, I even, you know, Square Enix have talked about it, uh, despite the fact that it was a remake, it was kind of considered the next main entry in the Final Fantasy series, and I also kind of treat it that way. So, that's the weird list I'm going to be doing for you. I'm going to be doing the top 15 mainline Final Fantasy numbered games, except 11 and 14 aren't in it, and I've put 10-2 and 7 remake in instead. Follow that? Excellent. Let's begin. Okay, number 15. I'm going to begin this list with Final Fantasy's sophomore effort, Final Fantasy 2 on the NES. And it's really weird. There's a lot of games, that, uh, a lot of franchises that began on the NES and went on to exist for decades afterwards with sequel after sequel after sequel. And the second game in those franchises are often the weird one. It's, it's happened more times than once and it's very, it's very strange. Um, the Legend of Zelda has a weird sequel. Uh, Mario has a weird sequel. Uh, Castlevania has a weird sequel. Uh, Metroid has a weird sequel, even though that was on the Game Boy. And I kind of really like that about those franchises, that uh, you, you, you can learn what those franchises are all about and, and, what, and what they do, yet you can find the second one in the franchise, and it's this weird outlier. And um, I don't love all those games I mentioned, um, but I find them at least all interesting. Um, not so much Final Fantasy II, unfortunately, which has the honor of being the weird outlier in its own franchise as well, but not in any real interesting or, in my opinion, good ways, which is why I have it on the bottom of this list, the very bottom, that's where I'm putting it. Final Fantasy I had a very simple battle system, which I'll get into when I'm talking about Final Fantasy I, that was inspired by what came before it and Dungeons and & Dragons and Dragon Quest, like I said, and kind of birthed what the battle system of Final Fantasy would be like going on, and Final Fantasy II continued that battle system, but they tried to get clever with certain aspects of it. Almost as if someone said, you know, when you run in real life, you get better at running. And when you lift weights in real life, you get better at lifting weights. So how Final Fantasy II's um, whole system works is that if you want to upgrade your stats, if you want to get better at attacking, you, your stat improves every time you attack. Therefore, your, your magic improves every time you use magic. But they kind of kept going with this and... Um, it it gets really weird. You you have to improve some stats by taking damage. You have to improve your HP. You have to take damage. So, leveling up in that game isn't just about killing monsters and receiving experience points. It's all about the each specific thing you do, um, in battle. And it it makes sense on paper maybe, but in practice it's hugely tedious and hugely exhausting and just like uh, not fun at all and broken as well. Either like it, either in two of the extremes either like it's it's easily um breakable to the point where you can just kind of take advantage of it if you put the, the time in uh, some, some some tedious gameplay and grinding but if you put the time in you can become very powerful very easily but also the other side of it where if you're just kind of playing that game casually 
And this is a criticism I can throw at a lot of old Final Fantasies and a lot of old JRPGs, but particularly in 2, sometimes if you're playing casually and you're just trying to enjoy it and you can get to a point in the game where you haven't been doing the right things in battle and you're just not equipped to fight what's coming at you and you're kind of you're kind of fucked unless you have old save files at that point. So I think it, the main reason, yeah, why Final Fantasy 2 is my, my least favourite one is it's just not fun to play and, and the this, this system they came up for it is broken. Which is kind of a shame because there is... Um, there's an early effort in Final Fantasy 2 to kind of uh, become the, these, the big kind of story-driven experiences that we'd, we'd come to love with Final Fantasy. It has a kind of um, a kind of a Star Wars-inspired story, um, a kind of rebels versus a kind of an evil empire, and it it it, be, it, it begins in media res. Like Final Fantasy One is very deliberate. It has a, it has a kind of an opening crawl. You are the four warriors of light. Go do thing, and it's all very traditional. But kind of Final Fantasy Two immediately was kind of more narratively ambitious to try to kind of throw you into it, and you begin on the world map, and even the world map music is like more somber. It, it, there's there's a, an attempt to kind of strike a tone straight away, but whatever I kind of appreciate about Final Fantasy Two is buried by either the fact that the gameplay side of the coin is just so not fun and unmanageable or that you know its its achievements would be avalanched by Final Fantasy games that would come after it it's kind of hard to look back at the things that Final Fantasy 2 did right these days because you know its achievements aren't as large as, as some of its equals and I think I would only recommend it to people who almost want to experience it kind of academically if you're you're, if you're interested in the history of games if you're interested in the history of Final Fantasy uh, it's kind of you know it's a part of that history even if it's kind of an inessential part. I played it when I was younger and I think it made me less than I am. So yeah, next, number 14. When Final Fantasy 13 came out in 2009, I was not emotionally equipped to not like a Final Fantasy game. And I'd never expected not to like a Final Fantasy game. Final Fantasy was and it had been such a huge deal for me and... um that point in my life the games that I loved were definitely a crutch kind of an unhealthy crutch so I remember playing Final Fantasy 13 and not liking it and being furious over it I really hated this game I really hated it because it broke my heart these days I don't really have any hatred for it anymore and and it's interesting 2009 is such a long time ago now that um there's a lot of interesting perspectives and a lot of analysis of Final Fantasy XIII online now. And I think it was kind of regarded as um, a weak link in the franchise, but there's a lot of people coming to its aid these days. However, I think it fails at everything it tries to do. I might not have any hatred for it anymore. The fire might have subsided, but um, it's been replaced with a kind of dull apathy. But cards on the table, I sort of have an apathy or Jesus I don't even think apathy is the right word I have a, a general dislike for this whole era of um of Square Enix I it, for me it's when they kind of their personality merged into one grey mound of sameness but that that's a kind of a blanket statement uh, Final Fantasy 13 throws you in on the deep end it begins in media res and a lot of great Final Fantasy games have done that I I often think and this extends to other games like Zelda games as well I think you don't always have to begin your main character waking up in bed and in his village only for bandits to come in you can throw you can throw the player into the middle of the action and some Final Fantasy games later have done that excellently Final Fantasy 7 probably the most famous example but Final Fantasy 13 throws you into the middle of an ongoing story and you're kind of playing catch-up which is okay but that happens for the rest of the game. You're playing catch-up for the rest of the game. 
the story is way too convoluted there's way too many terms thrown at you that don't make you know they're all make up made make yuppie terms so it gives you a kind of an encyclopedia that you can go into your menu and you can like read up on terms that have been mentioned and you know literal plot points that have happened already like i don't understand what that was you can go back and read it and thing and the kind of like a turning point for me in playing this game was realizing that this wasn't just a helpful little thing that they added into your menu it's almost like they want you to read this the story itself cannot speak for itself well enough you have to go into this thing and and, and read up on events that um have happened to get the full story it was made on the playstation 3 at a time when like the surge in, in in the potential for graphics was amazing at the time and final fantasy 13 is a beautiful looking game it still is it still is but there was a lot of discourse around its production about um square enix and the people making the game being very kind of um candid with the fact that uh graphics had become so good and be, had become so time consuming to produce that they'd have to you know they had to make sacrifices in the gameplay and that was a that was a great debate and where is this worth it you know what what are we what are we gaining what are we giving up final fantasy 13 has a very strange structure where it's linear for about half the game like and like aggressively linear as in you walk down a path that you do a bit of story you do some battling eventually the game does open up uh, into this kind of open place that you can kind of explore to your heart's content but this is about 30 hours into the game and i think even more so you what i what i love about final fantasy and i've talked about this in my final fantasy episode own but um i love how they're very much interested in like the gameplay and leveling up but they they also realize that they can stop for a story section to build world to build character and final fantasy 13 does not have either the the time or the interest in doing this it's it's very back and forth. It's kind of, you know, here's some battling, here's a cutscene. Here, here's some battling, here's a cutscene. And it's a cutscene of your mopey characters really artlessly um, dumping exposition on each other. It has a really interesting battle system. It's kind of, it's turn-based. Again, it's built around this idea of um, changing your character's classes in battle and kind of almost programming them, pro- programming them with um, the classes that they can change into on the fly. So uh, one class might be all about offensive attacks. One class might be about um, using, you know, status effects on enemies. Um, And it works really good, uh, but there's a couple of problems. It works really well when you have three party members, and that's the maximum amount of party members you're able to have. But the game's gameplay and story sit so uncomfortably with each other that for a lot of the game, you don't have three party members in your party. Um, The game has... The game wants to hit story beats so it does a really interesting thing story-wise where early on it has all your main characters gathered together with the big instigating event and then has them get into a big row and they kind of split up into teams of two and that's kind of interesting to kind of pair off characters and start developing developing them and then bring them all together later but it like i said it just it fits so clumsily with the gameplay because for a lot of the early hours of that game you're playing final fantasy 13's battle system with two party members and in my opinion final fantasy's battle system with two party members is really bad and i think that's something that they should have caught on to in the early design phase it's it's not on that 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 they would kind of prioritize their their narrative that they'd written and sacrifice um the gameplay to such an extent but Final Fantasy Thirteen was a game I really wanted to like back when I played it, and uh, I think I had Stockholm Syndrome with it for about fifty hours, where I did think I liked it. But um, upon reflection, um, I don't think it does anything right, even though my like I said, my my rage has subsided. But I think that the conversation about this game 
ended up getting quite interesting as years went on. Like I said, I've seen good videos about it, but I do not like this game at all. It's an easy low point in the Final Fantasy franchise for me. But uh, power to you if you like it. Okay, next on the list, number 13. I think when reviewing Final Fantasy games, I think when reviewing most games, uh, or when ranking them like this, there's a lot of elements I like to I like to juggle. I, I, I don't just kind of split it into... Uh, what's the gameplay like? Well, like in, in Final Fantasy terms, what's the battle system like? Do I like the story? I think there's a lot of other things. There's, there's characters, there's the world, there's there's a whole general vibe and feeling of being in a game that I think um, needs to be taken into account a lot. Which is why, while stating that it's nowhere near a bad game and it's also really important. In fact, I think Final Fantasy 2 and Final Fantasy 13 are the only two games on this entire list that I, I'm kind of down on. But I'm going to do Final Fantasy 1 next. Um, basically, it's incredibly important and it birthed this whole thing. But um, my love for it is definitely much less uh, than uh, later games in the franchise. But I love playing these old NES games from the 80s, um, especially the ones that end up, you know, like spawning huge franchises that went through the decades. And Final Fantasy 1 is really like that. It's so cool to play it these days it's so as soon as it starts up and the final fantasy music uh, the overture is playing and and, and like i mentioned earlier the final fantasy one setup is very simple it kind of gives you a spiel about you're the four warriors of light and you got to get them crystals there's four crystals you got to travel across the land and find them and on your way you'll be doing some random battling you'll be going to towns and that's great and in 1987 it was fantastic and it's, it is kind of almost very D D like in in the beginning of this game you you don't have named characters or at least i believe they might be named in the book maybe or something and they might be named now but back then they weren't you can name them what you want and you choose their classes and uh the class you choose um at the beginning of the game that's what you got for for the rest of the game you can like level up their classes and improve them but um you can't change it and final fantasy um well one thing i'll be getting into um is the job system which kind of um has a kind of a light motif of game design through a bunch of the final fantasy games where you can start changing jobs but in final fantasy one you choose your four characters jobs at the very beginning and that's what you got it was a fighter black mage white mage thief monk or red mage and i love how much personality they managed to ring out of the nes for this game as soon as it starts up and you're on the world map and the music starts playing you just feel like you're on an adventure and the battle screens they're so simplistic by by today's design but it was a big deal at the time to have kind of enemies on the left they were kind of more detailed um kind of um pictures of monsters and then on your right you had your characters on the screen like um big the other big rivals of the jrpg franchise like um dragon quest um you couldn't see your characters in battle and that might be who cares these days but that was a huge deal to have your characters and the enemies on the screen at one time it was a uh, very striking but from my perspective i never played final fantasy one when it came out in 1987 i wasn't born yet i played it after I'd played numerous other Final Fantasies. So perhaps it's kind of um, the full kind of effect of its ambitions might be lost in me, but I've, it's always given me the fuzzies though. I've always had a, a very warm place in my heart for Final Fantasy 1. Um, and it's aged in ways that a lot of old games have aged. Um, it, I think it's overly difficult. Um, you kind of, if you're playing the original version of Final Fantasy 1, you do have to grind a lot, which means, you know, kind of stop the momentum of the game and start just doing random battles to to um, level up your characters before you can move on and I think a good RPG will always have more of a flow to it and you, you will never have to grind but I, I'll forgive something as um, as old and influential as Final Fantasy 1 to be honest but uh, in terms of other um, classic NES games that I might not have played you know when they came out and I went back and played them Final Fantasy 1 isn't quite 
that high in my list. Doesn't quite have that big place in my heart as like the original Legend of Zelda or Jesus, the original Mario Brothers. But I'll always um, have a soft spot for this game. And it probably deserves a higher place in this list, but I'm going to try to juggle the kind of bricks and mortar of these games with kind of my, um, just what I'm feeling in my heart. And Final Fantasy 1 is my third least favorite Final Fantasy game. There, it's done. It's set in stone. Number 12. Next up is Final Fantasy 3. And that's right, I've kind of um, already gone through the original three Final Fantasy uh, NES games. And that doesn't mean I have any bad blood towards them or anyone who loves them. Even though anyone who loves them probably grew up with them. And they're old, old men now. As old as the hills. But no, Final Fantasy 3 is great. It's my favourite of the original three NES ones. And it um, introduced um, the job system, which I mentioned while talking about Final Fantasy 1. Where, like I said, in Final Fantasy 1, you choose your classes at the beginning of the game. If you want a monk and a fighter, a black mage and a white mage, that's who you have for the rest of the game. In Final Fantasy 3, your four little dudes begin as guys called Onion Knights. And Onion Knights is essentially Final Fantasy speak for, I don't know, not really, not really a class. And then you, your characters gain the abilities of different classes and you can change anytime you want throughout the game. Which means there's a lot of potential for customization. And I think um, potential for customization will always improve a JRPG, at least on the technical side of it. Final Fantasy 3 just overall under the hood was just a better game than Final Fantasy 1 and Final Fantasy 2 because of this there were so many um, ways to kind of um, different tactics you use with different jobs and different ways to express yourself and and they started bringing in ideas rather than just you, you can change your character's class um, and then they can use different abilities in battle there was items and equipment in, in shops that were four specific classes four specific jobs and you could make any of your four characters any one of the jobs anytime you wanted and that just it was great. The job system would become an institution of um, the Final Fantasy series, uh, like I said. It's not the last time I'd be bringing it up, and it will be improved in later games. But um, this, I think, is the most important point. Uh, this is the kind of inception of it. And it's kind of, you know, for, for splitting hairs, it's kind of stolen from Dragon Quest. Dragon Quest kind of did this idea first, but this is a Final Fantasy list. Do you know what? Other than that, I don't have much more to say about Final Fantasy III. I think, I think I'd rather move on. I, I will say that, it, like, like all NES Final Fantasy games and most NES games in general, it's probably overly difficult. I just have a lot of memories of playing this game when I was young and finding it so, so difficult. But it is my favourite of the original three Final Fantasy games. And it um, brought Final Fantasy into the 90s. It came out in 1990. Is that important? Who knows? Moving on. Number 11. Right, next up is the first of the two games that I've muscled into this list. I'm putting Final Fantasy X-2 next. And like I've mentioned, Final Fantasy X-2 was an oddity because it is a direct sequel to Final Fantasy X. And it was met with a lot of raised eyebrows at the time. Not just for that reason, but because it really tries to strike a very different tone, has a very different style than Final Fantasy X, and I think that weirded a lot of people out at the time. But I think uh, some context, and I'll, I'll get to talking about Final Fantasy X obviously much later on this list, but for some context, Final Fantasy X is this story where you have to accompany um, a woman called Yuna on a pilgrimage because the world they live in, Spira, is um, set upon by this horrible beast called Sin, who, who's a recurring calamity that keeps coming and laying waste to the country, and every now and then a summoner needs to go on a pilgrimage and... Um, destroy Sin at the cost of their own life. Spoiler. 
And the world of Spira is very much a world that's based around um, a, f- a faith, a religion called uh, the Church of Yevon. And by the end of Final Fantasy X, not only have you completely dismantled the country's main religion, uh, you've stopped the cycle of sin, you've destroyed sin from uh, forever, forever and ever, and, and good stuff. When Final Fantasy X 2 picks up, it's a very different Spira, and... And it's interesting, um, you and I, by being a summoner in the previous game and going on this, you know, all-important pilgrimage, she's also the daughter of another famous summoner who um, sacrificed his own life and is, is, is famous for it. She's kind of a celebrity in that world because of that. I don't know if celebrity is the right word, but she's very much, um, there's a big devotion following her. And I think what Final Fantasy X-2 tries to do is we, we, we're thrown into a spirit that um, is freed from the chains uh, of, of all this um these religious laws and this and, and this monster and the duties to destroy this monster so it's a spirit that's kind of let its hair down so it tries to depict a world that's more frivolous and fun so yuna is still a celebrity but now she's a pop star well that's her day job anyway she's also a thing called a sphere hunter spheres are the kind of recording devices of um of this world and she's kind of an indiana jones type she travels around with her, her team to find ancient spheres um, she has an ulterior motive. She's trying to she's trying to find a guy. Uh, talk about him more, and I talk about Final Fantasy X. But yeah, for all intents and purposes, Yuna is a pop star, and so are the other two main characters in this game, Riku and Pain. And a lot of people at the time really hated that because that means that this game is really it has pop songs in it. It goes from this far more traditional Final Fantasy world and story of you know defeating this giant monster and characters who have great purpose and destiny and fighting against that destiny to suddenly they're up on stage in front of crowds singing um, quirky J-pop songs. And there was a lot of backlash towards this game at the time because of that. But I think in retrospect, I think it's interesting. Like I said, I think it's supposed to show the world post the events of Final Fantasy X. And there's also some really good world building in the plot of this game. Like I said, the main religion, um, uh, Yevon, is destroyed. So a lot of the plot of this game... Um, it's about kind of different sects and institutions that have um, risen up in the kind of vacuum that that, um, that religion has left in its wake. And I think that's a, a cool way to look at this world uh, post Final Fantasy X. And I, and I think, like I said, I think the idea of Yuna becoming a pop star and becoming a much more fun type of celebrity is an interesting way to do a sequel of this game. And I think they, they lent into that and it kind of permeates the entire tone of the game. And it has a very different feel than Final Fantasy X. And I understand fans kind of, you know, not liking that. But I, I'm of the opinion that if you... I, I think Final Fantasy games, one of, one of the things that I really like about them is that they are singular stories. That when you play Final Fantasy VII, play Final Fantasy VIII, play Final Fantasy II, whatever. You get a whole story, you get a whole world. And then when you play the next ones, uh, you, can, you don't have to play any other ones. You can just go in and play these games as singular things. And I think if you are going to return um, to a world of Final Fantasy, if you're going to create a sequel, I think you shouldn't be repeating yourself. I think you should be aiming to uh, do something vastly different. And, you know, that's what Final Fantasy X-2 did. It, it, it feels very different. And I think a lot of fans weren't able to gel with that. But I also think there's kind of a... There was a big backlash to X-2 at the time. And, I, and looking back at it now, but looking back to the far-flung 2000s, this game came out in um, 2003... There is a backlash towards the game that I kind of have less time for. I think a lot of um, fans, a lot of Final Fantasy fans kind of decided that this game was a betrayal of their precious Final Fantasy series because it was too girly. And the whole thing is kind of a very uh, 
<laughs> overemphasized stereotypical version of girliness like i said our main characters are they're a pop group they sing they sing a pop song in the opening cutscene of this game they often strike charlie's angel poses together but there was a really tedious boring look at this girly shit in my final fantasy series kind of attitude towards this game as if final fantasy as a series already isn't like an extremely girly thing like, I think if you're a fan of Final Fantasy, you're already kind of engaging with a lot of uh, aspects of pop culture that have been coded as feminine or girly already. You know, Final Fantasy, half of them are love stories. They all have, like, love ballads that released with the games, at least the later ones. And I do think there was this kind of a boorish kind of attitude towards Ten Two, And it was like, oh, look look at our precious Final Fantasy, which already was full of, you know, love songs. Look what they've done to it. They've put pop music into it and all this girly shit. And no, I have no time for that. That's really boring. And listen up, man. If you're ever going to achieve the, the, the greatest version of masculinity within you, you need to engage with that femininity that's also inherent within you, you know. And you can do that by playing the silly-ass JRPG with a J-pop, girl band numbers called Final Fantasy X-2 and you can go out and you can eat, eat an ice cream cone in public. Get some on your nose, you cute bitches. So yeah, I think a lot of the criticism that was thrown at Final Fantasy X-2 was kind of from that angle of uh, this is girly shit so it's not worth our time and I think that kind of sullied um, the discourse about it and the, and the criticism about it. Um, and I, I, like I said, I think leaning into um, this kind of silly world is an interesting way to do the sequel, considering how the first game ends. But I, I still have this game quite low on my list. Uh, I can't quite um, just wholeheartedly praise it. For one thing, it came out on the PlayStation 2, and, he, and here's a blanket hot take. But I, I kind of... And this extends to games I like much more than uh, Final Fantasy X-2 that came out on the PlayStation 2. Um, by Square Enix, like uh, Final Fantasy X and Kingdom Hearts. But it's kind of an awkward era graphically where, where the, the graphical prowess is rising, but it, it's at this kind of um, uncanny valley stage where uh, half the time characters' faces are really low res and you can kind of always see when they decide to make characters' faces like really animated and when they just have a low one, they jump between them and it's just really awkward. And when you have a game <laughs> with a kind of a, <laughs> a trio of main characters who like to strike curly poses and do all that. It's really awkward with the stiff animation and the low res faces and the kind of the like the the voice acting in this game is grand, but it was um, being dubbed against um, Japanese um, lip work. So it, it, the whole thing is just really awkward. And I and I kind of prefer the two eras of um, Final Fantasy that that the PlayStation Two is in between in, in terms of graphics. I, I'd like to go either the other streams, either back to the PlayStation 1, where you have kind of these low-res little kind of crude character sprites, but but to um, combat the, the low graphics of the PlayStation 1, they had these beautiful hand-drawn uh, pre-rendered backgrounds. Or you go further to like Final Fantasy 13, when Square Enix finally had uh, the graphical capability to depict these characters as these fucking beautiful elves that they always wanted them to be. And Final Fantasy X-2 is sort of uh, stuck in a kind of a zone between that and the whole thing looks really awkward, especially since I, I think the awkwardness of the graphics kind of um, doesn't mix well with the tone the game is trying to hit and the whole thing comes across very awkward, even though I respect the tone, respect the style of this game. I, I don't think the PlayStation 2 was a good friend to to it. But overall, I dig this game. Uh, like I said, I just I think 
if you kind of peel everything away, I think it's the right, it, it, not the right idea, but it's a good idea how to do a Final Fantasy X sequel. Um, uh, Yuna wasn't the main character of Final Fantasy X, so I think she's she's a perfect, um, perfect main character for this one to continue her story. And she was a kind of um, a summoner in a, in a kind of very ceremonial outfit in the first game. And, you know, she's bound by duty and destiny. And she wields a, a kind of a, a staff as a weapon, and and the way they depict her in this one is, yeah, now she's in a now she's in a pop group, and instead of um, a staff, she has two guns. It's very gamey ways to depict a person who's kind of um, been liberated, been freed. And they teamed her up with Riku, uh, another returning Final Fantasy X character, and then gave them both a goth best friend, which I think more than anything is what more sequels should do. So yeah, Final Fantasy X-2, um, underrated, misunderstood, but I still can't quite put it higher on this list. Before I move on, actually, I've, I remember buying Final Fantasy X-2 in 2003. I was about 14, I'd say, and uh, I, I was buying it in my uh, local ExtraVision, which is about a seven or eight minute walk from my house. And uh, I remember walking down to get it and I saw a man in the distance. And it looked like he had a big beard and a hospital gown. He was kind of jogging towards me. And then as he got closer, I saw that it wasn't a big beard. It was that there was blood coming from his nose. It was all over the bottom half of his face, his chin. And it was going all over the hospital gown, down to like his chest. And I just froze. You know, you think you, think you have courage in you sometimes, but then it just leaves you. And I just remember freezing. And he ran past me and just kind of looked at me and went, all right. And kept running off, and then like a minute later, two like hospital orderlies came running past, uh, clearly chasing him. And I just went about my business and uh, went down and bought Final Fantasy X-2. Yeah, next Final Fantasy. Number 10. Final Fantasy XV is the latest of um, the traditionally numbered Final Fantasy games. came out in 2016 so we're, we're pretty recent we're really recent enough in the grand scheme of things compared to other games and final fantasy 15 was this big messy troubled production it took 10 years to make it was originally announced as final fantasy versus 13 because final fantasy 13 um, kind of expanded out into a kind of a, a franchise and it was never intended to have any connection to final fantasy 13 but it was going to be kind of a spiritual spin-off i think it was um referred to but the production lasted so long that it just ended up being renamed to Final Fantasy XV and ended up becoming the next classic traditional Final Fantasy game. Although I don't think I could ever use the word classic or t- traditional one talking about this game. But yeah, big, long, messy production and you can feel it when you play this game. This is a confused game. This is a strange game. You can see that they had all these um, story ideas or concepts that they ended up either pivoting away from uh, abandoning altogether or like doing different versions of it you can you can almost just see it almost feels like a game dismantled that needs to be reassembled and they didn't reassemble it before they released it and my biggest criticism of final fantasy 15 is that it feels unfinished um, when you play it and when you finish it it just doesn't feel like a whole thing and in my heart maybe like because of this like reason solely i shouldn't how how, how dare i have it above Final Fantasy 1 or 3 or 10 2 as well I like that game but for me Final Fantasy 15 when I when I played it in 2016 it, it it did something that I hadn't done in a long time it made me like a Square Enix game for me this is a kind of a return to form for Square Enix and it's not really it's as like if someone came up to me and said oh look Final Fantasy 15 another bad Square Enix game I'd be like yes I completely agree but 
it has something that I missed from Square Enix games for years. Is it has its own sense of personality. It has its own individualism. And that individualism is um, represented by just my favourite part of the game. It, it, the fact that the central premise has you play as these four boys on a road trip. The story is kind of you play as um, a Prince Noctis and he has a retinue of best buddies who all have different jobs. Um, but their main jobs are being his best friends. And yeah, he, he, he his country is attacked and subjugated and he has to go on an adventure to find all uh, these wet ancient weapons and um you know f- fight evil and do all that good final fantasy stuff but forget all that the main story of final fantasy 15 is you three of your friends driving around the final fantasy world in your car and you all look like four japanese pop stars all clad in black and w- say what you will this is a choice and I respect that it's a choice and it's extremely memorable. And no other characters you meet in the game, like the NPCs or anything, they don't really look like your four guys. They kind of look like Fallout NPCs. And I just find that really funny that you're kind of put into this world with all these, you know, reasonably realistic looking people. And then you're just these four anime guys just like bulldozing into people's lives. Like, I'd love to see it. I'd love to be in Ireland sometimes, you know, just going down to shops, you know, to buy a LucasAide and just knock this Ignis gladio and and prompto just pull up in their fucking car and come in and and, and, like who are these anime guys coming in buying penny jellies but basically what i'm trying to say is i was continuously bored by square enix games in that era and i wasn't bored by final fantasy 15 i just think the whole thing is funny i think the whole thing is a choice and the other aspect of the story that i really like that i genuinely think they landed on accidentally is that it almost feels like you're on this road trip uh, you're camping and you can cook food that's the whole aspect of it and it's the most beautifully rendered food you'll ever see in a video game and yeah you're, you're you have the quest going on you're collecting these weapons but it almost feels like while you're on this best friends boy band road trip a final fantasy like a traditional final fantasy plot is happening in the background and you're like just hearing about it there's an evil empire in this game as there is in many final fantasy games that's kind of destroyed you know, without your input, you kind of finally get to it and shit has already gone down. And what I actually think this is is, is from is Final Fantasy XV's troubled development, where I think they had all these ideas and they ended up reshuffling things and uh, restructuring things. Final Fantasy XV was a game that launched with a prequel movie, a prequel anime series that, you, that expected you to watch so you could, like, get the information you needed for this for this game. And that's, like bad it's really bad that's just terrible storytelling and it's, it's awkward and I, I i think this was i think the story ended up getting kind of trodden all over due to the production and had to rely on cross medium uh, other stories to you know to help enjoy this story is terrible but i think through it all they accidentally landed on something interesting and i really do think it's not an accident and this is a final fantasy game but by this point now the turn-based battles and all that have completely done away with this is like an action game and i, I don't think battle system is fantastic but it can feel really cool sometimes uh, Noctis can tell he can throw his sword or weapon whatever he's using and teleport around the battlefield which can feel really cool it's a, it, it can be a little bit um repetitive you often find uh you often find just no matter what happens you just have a, a lot of items that you can just heal yourself with but it, it square enix just started you know making a career out of you know trying to recreate the action scenes from their movie final fantasy advent children but uh making them playable and i think this is um a good take on that it's very flashy 
but uh, I wouldn't go on about it as anything too spectacular. I have a lot of memories of battling in Final Fantasy fifteen and trying to attack a beautifully designed and rendered monster. That's a crazy thing, and all I can see is, is the tree that's right behind me or something like that, you know? But it's sort of all about the, the four main characters in this one, and, and while I wouldn't say that they're the most richly, brilliantly written characters ever, I, they all kind of... They're all kind of good enough versions of their archetypes, and and their relationship is like defined enough. And it, a big compliment I'll give Final Fantasy Fifteen is that the reason you end up kind of resonating and and enjoying these characters so much is mostly not true. The kind of ropey story. It's the fact that the game is so singularly about you going on a road trip with these four guys that the gameplay kind of bonds you with these characters. And it all kind of culminates in a weirdly um, sad ending, uh, but definitely one of the saddest in, in Final Fantasy history, history which I, I respect a lot. And the, because I enjoyed these characters so much and because the, I enjoyed the whole road trip aspect of it, I, the, the ending is emotional. It got me. Although this is another aspect that I don't know if Square Enix quite knew what they had because the game's ending, it, it, the final note it ends on is concerning the, the romance um, um, plotline and uh, the the romance plotline in this game um i couldn't give two shits about no it's just another aspect of i think they the developers of this game just kind of fell into something good accidentally despite themselves the fact that they they think to end on the underdeveloped romance of the game really kind of shows me that they didn't know that what was good about their game at least in my opinion there's a shot near the end of this game of just like four um like deck chairs or whatever just on a mountain, all empty now, and that is, um, and that is um, a, a wonderful image uh, in the grand scheme of um, Final Fantasy fifteen stories, and that, that that's where they should end it. But no, again, I don't think they know they knew what was good about the game. But doesn't matter. Uh, art is bigger than the artist, and although I could never put Final Fantasy fifteen higher than where I have it here, um, all the disparate elements of this game it did end up being something I really liked. And I'll kind of champion it with a, a litany of caveats. Okay, number nine. Out of all the games, I think this is the one where I, I struggle to where to place it the most. Where, where am I? Number nine, I ended up putting it. I put it at number nine. And I think this is probably the most influential Final Fantasy game in terms of it laid the, the bedrock of what the series would become and what would end up being my favourite era of the series, like far more than even Final Fantasy 1, the, the originator of the series. And that game is Final Fantasy 4 for the Super Nintendo, which was known and loved in America as uh, Final Fantasy 2, confusingly. This came out in 1991, and video games had been telling stories long before 1991. Final Fantasy had been telling stories long before 1991. But this is where the real ambition began, to tell a truly character-driven story, to have dramatic beats, to have twists, to have character arcs. And I love that this happened on the Super Nintendo. I love that it's with little sprite people. They didn't care of the graphical limitations of how this looked. There was just such a passion to tell a, a great fantasy story. And that would go on to um, define every Final Fantasy game after this. But it began in Final Fantasy IV, or at least began Whole Hog. And this is all pretty traditional, bog-standard fantasy adventure stuff. Uh, bog-standard is a bit harsh, but what I'm trying to say is that, that this is uh, the bread and butter of your, the usual fantasy adventure genre, but it really is the fact that it's transposed into a video game in the early 90s that like 
makes it so impressive uh, to me. And you have, like I said, you have character acts in this. You have betrayals. You have sudden deaths. You have people sacrificing themselves. You have bad guys who turn good. You have plot twists. And and it's wonderful. And there's a very great early example of using the gameplay or using the mechanics of the game for a big uh, story beat that I love from Final Fantasy IV. And it, it regards your main character, Cecil. Cecil is a dark knight working working for this empire and you actually begin the game and you're you're working for the bad guys. Cecil and his best buddy Kane are basically traveling around um hashing out villages trying to collect crystals and the, and you know one of the, the main plot arcs of the story is Cecil realizing he's working for the bad guys and kind of repenting for that. And it takes the form of a, a big plot moment where um Cecil changes his character class. There's no job system in Final Fantasy IV like there was in the previous game, Final Fantasy III. Um, I think the fact that it's more story-driven than um, it, it, its predecessors means that, you know, they wanted each character to be defined almost by their class, or, or at least for it to be a very big part of their character. So rather than you deciding what jobs or class your characters are, you know, that's who they are. You have your white mage character, you have your monk, and Cecil is a dark knight, like I said, and... Uh, but when he be when he realizes he's, he's a, working for the bad guys and he, he repents, there's a big plot moment where he becomes a paladin, and that's just a, that's such a good shorthand for writing um, a significant plot development development and using um, the tools of a video game to do it. Because his whole look changes, yes, but he his abilities in battle change. Like there there is a moment where you play a lot of hours of this game as Cecil the Dark Knight, and then there's a moment and he becomes Cecil the Paladin and he plays differently in battle. I really like that. They were so limited back then uh, in the early 90s under Super Nintendo that to kind of um, emphasize this point by changing your character's look and making him play differently in battle has really hits home the significance of, of the plot point. Cecil before that had like a, a move he could use that um, that hit all it was hit all enemies with dark energy. It wasted a bit of his health, but you know it was an extremely useful move. But he loses it when he becomes a paladin and I remember playing and you kind of miss that move because it is like really useful and I remember initially feeling that you know Cecil the paladin was a bit of a downgrade in battle from Cecil the dark knight but that works for the story as well you know this was something he had to do and to kind of use the kind of the battle system to make it feel like there was a degree of sacrifice for Cecil in doing this you know it strengthens the moment and that's the kind of stuff that a lot of early games should have been using you know to to emphasize their stories when they didn't have graphics or or anything else you know on their side to tell these stories and i think it's wonderful and it's still wonderful all these years later and i admire it so much i think if you played final fantasy 4 when it came out if you played it before um its sequels and when final fantasy got big big on the playstation playstation and it became this whole other thing this was a, this was almost a pure era of final fantasy before it, it wanted to be really cool and anime like it always told wonderful stories and always had it would always go on to have such a love for its characters but there definitely are elements when Final Fantasy really wanted to be or the people making Final Fantasy should I say really wanted to make it really cool as well and it, it, like I said it feels pure in, 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 in Final Fantasy 4 it feels like a more humble game and what I was saying is that I think if you, if you played it before all those I can imagine loving this Final Fantasy maybe the most I didn't play it in 1991. I was three years old and it didn't come out in the country I was born in. 
I would go on to play Final Fantasy 4 after I'd played a litany of other Final Fantasies and I think that has kind of coloured my um, relationship with it and I'm kind of at a point where I do kind of respect and admire it more than love it because I think a lot of the things it did really well I think uh, like I said with Final Fantasy 2 I think its sequels would go on to do better in my opinion but that doesn't take away from how important it was how revolutionary it was and how much of Final Fantasy, the JRPG genre in general, kind of stands on its shoulders as being held up by it. It walked so other games could run. And gameplay-wise, it, it wouldn't be my favourite um, JRPG. I, it's still a little bit in that era where you have to stop, you have to put pause on progression and kind of grind your characters and just a random battle train your characters, so to speak, and I, I, I've always disliked that. It's not the best balanced game in, in that regard. But it's still extremely playable. It hasn't aged that much, in my opinion. And you couple that with a genuinely great story in in terms of how much it cares about its characters. And you know, like Final Fantasy VII would end up becoming famous for um, a significant death. There's deaths in Final Fantasy IV. There's big plot twists, and like I said, there's character transformations. And I just, I get, I, I love, I love looking back at it. Um, it's so important as someone who would go on to like really love story-driven games a lot. I I think my hobby, the games that I've loved, oh so much to Final Fantasy IV, and I and that definitely that definitely makes it gives it a bigger place in my heart. Even though I can't quite put it higher on this list, uh, in my list of Final Fantasy games, I, I still think it's wonderful, and I recommend anyone who hasn't played it, who loves JRPGs, who loves Final Fantasy, who even um, loves games to play it. It's it's one of those essential games. And uh, I feel kind of bad for not having it higher, but uh, them's the breaks. Final Fantasy IV, though, good shit. Next up, number eight. So Final Fantasy XI came out, and like I said at the beginning, I'm not going to be doing Final Fantasy XI on this list. But XI came out, and it was this huge departure for the series. It was a massively multiplayer online RPG, and I remember thinking, this is cool, this is exciting, but, um, you know, let's get back to the traditional Final Fantasy, please. But little did I know that the traditional Final Fantasy would never really return. What I would consider traditional Final Fantasy would never really return after eleven, And even when um, the next game came out and it would be another single-player, story-driven game, um, it, it took the form of something very different than uh, what um, fans were used to with Final Fantasy. And that game was, uh, you know, after eleven. so we, that game was Final Fantasy twelve. Final Fantasy XII does away with uh, turn-based battles and random battles. Enemies are on the field, you can see them, you run up to them, start fighting them. It very much takes elements from the MMORPG, from uh, obviously Final Fantasy XI, and it's very similar to stuff like World of Warcraft. And that's how it structures its battles. It has a very um, strange um, core battle system mechanic that was uh, divisive at the time, where you, um, you actually, you know, you... You don't so much play as your characters as you program them. Each character in, in 12 has a thing called a license board, which you, you put different plates on that represent different uh, attributes or skills they have in battle. And this is kind of you kind of making a, pro, a preset program for your characters. And when you run up to an enemy in Final Fantasy 12, your character starts hacking at him automatically himself. You don't have to press a button to swing a sword or anything like that. And... To get really good at the battle system in 12, you're supposed to just pre-program your characters to be efficient. And it's a strange battle system. It's, it's a strange idea to want your player to have um, little input, but it actually ends up being a very customizable, um, very cool battle system. 
But Final Fantasy XII really does just feel so different from Final Fantasy in um, so many ways. And it would drop a lot of the things that would come to define a Final Fantasy story uh, in the last few years of the franchise and the last few games. Final Fantasy, which which I will be talking about more in, in upcoming games this list, it became uh, they, the game became incredibly romantic to the point where it would become the second most apt genre at the place Final Fantasy and would be romance after fantasy. But um, yeah, Final Fantasy XII does away with that. There's, there's no kind of real romance plot in it. It's actually a lot about political intrigue. And another key difference is, and Final Fantasy has done this before in its 6th century, but there's no real main character in Final Fantasy XII. It's more of an ensemble piece. You do have a character who brings you into the story. He's a kind of an Aladdin-type street urchin with dreams of being a sky pirate called Van. But as the game continues, and as the story continues, um, it becomes much more of a ensemble. You have a team of six characters and some guests who come in and out of your party. And by the second half of the game, um, any number of them kind of feel like the protagonist or feel like the central focus from uh, the princess Ash, who's who's trying to win her country back. So like a lot of the story is based around um, her character arc. So maybe she's the main character. Just kind of a Balthier. He's like a Han Solo type character. Um, and it kind of lampshades that aspect um, of the story, but he, he he refers to himself as the main character a lot. He, he likes to think he's in some kind of heroic story, and he, he's always saying, I'm the main character. But what I'm just trying to demonstrate is that it's very it feels very different, especially in this era of Final Fantasy, to have a, a game that doesn't kind of um, base its entire story around the main character's journey. Like Ivan, who's the entryway and who's advertised to be the main character, actually by the second half of the story doesn't have a lot to do and him and his buddy Pinello another kind of street urchin best friend they almost just feel like they're along for the ride they're just kind of witnessing uh, this, this, the events unfold and it's set in, in the world of Ivalice and Ivalice holds a very kind of strange place in um, the Final Fantasy series because it's actually revisited a lot in other games this is not the first time a game um, in the series has been set in uh, Ivalice so you get to see Ivalice through multiple games through different eras and it's an incredibly textured world and Final Fantasy 12 is very um, interested in the, the p- politics of it like I said and the kind of warring nations and factions it's almost kind of Game of Thrones-esque to kind of simplify it and I think one of 12's greatest feathers in its cap is just how lived in and detailed this world is and you can see the world of Ivalice in um, Final Fantasy Tactics. You can see it in Vagrant Story. It was created by Yasumi Matsuno, who actually began um, as the lead designer on Final Fantasy XII, but left halfway through to, due to creative differences. And I do think these rumblings of uh, perhaps troubled development do kind of, do kind of rear their ugly heads um, in Final Fantasy XII. It feels all at once such a singularly confident piece of game design, but, but it's also a game that can become quite meandering and unfocused and maybe is longer than it needs to be. And I always personally hate when games are longer than they need to be. But this could just be a personal preference. Um, I tend to like it in JRPGs when they're kind of um, focused and you kind of move from set piece to set piece. Uh, and, you know, the, I think you can use the different elements of a JRPG for good pacing uh, to have, you know, here's a story segment, here's a... Here's a dungeon, here's just a lot of battling. Final Fantasy XII, uh, like, it has its DNA in the MMORPG genre. So there's huge swaths of this game that are just running through huge maps and battling for hours and hours. And I understand why that's fine with some people, but it's absolutely my least favourite thing about Final Fantasy XII. But luckily, the gameplay of that game is really good, so it's never so much a chore as so much in it. Just It just feels a little bit too large and 
and like why have I been in this huge desert for four hours this could have been an hour but 12 is very much um, the game in the Final Fantasy series that has its um, haters people who just absolutely hate it and people who like love it um, so much that it's absolutely their favourite one and all these years later it's still such a unique entry in this series and I absolutely get that and it, it just really feels like that kind of game it feels like this is a game that could be someone's favourite game ever with its like very self-serious plotline, with its um, with its very um, detailed dialogue, and it has a, it has a brilliant English um, translation. That's like one compliment I've got to get, got to give this game as well. When Final Fantasy jumped into like you know full voice acting with Final Fantasy X, I don't think it was ever bad voice acting, but there there was definitely some growing pains. But um, already by the time Final Fantasy XII came out, the English uh, localization and translation and voice acting of this game is um, superb. And that's really important because this is a very um, complicated story almost, at least a very, a very large story, a lot of moving pieces. And yeah, I think the biggest um, compliment to end uh, my Final Fantasy XII section on is that all these years later, it just feels like its own thing within the Final Fantasy franchise. And I'll always love it, even though I remember playing it and yearning for, for the Final Fantasies of my youth. But these days, I'm so glad for it. I'm so glad it is what it is. And uh, there's a, a new version uh, called Final Fantasy Twelve: The Zodiac Age that's available almost everywhere and I recommend people picking it up. Uh, the main difference I noticed with it is that it's very easier. Final Fantasy Twelve, for its first 20 hours or so might be the most I've struggled ever with a Final Fantasy game. I could have just been really bad at it. I remember finding it so, so difficult. But then after that I, I, I started to gel with it or something and by the time I was fighting the last boss I was absolutely destroying him. Uh, Final Fantasy XII's Zodiac Age doesn't have such problems, it's much more balanced and other than the difficulty aspect it has so much better quality of life improvements that just make it a better game and I think um, like I said, people who love Final Fantasy XII um, tend to really love it I just think it's sitting there on someone's Switch store or someone's Playstation store and I think it's their favourite game ever, they just haven't discovered it yet it's just one of those games it's, it, it, it's so singularly unique it's great, check it out Moving on to number 7 I numbered this list out on my phone because I am a professional and I was looking at the list and I was like something's not right something's not right with how I've numbered these Final Fantasy games for my podcast and I was looking at it and I was like do you know what the main problem with this list is that I've put Final Fantasy 5 far too low I'm moving it up I originally had this below Final Fantasy 4 and Final Fantasy 12 but it my heart ached seeing it there I think this is a hugely underrated Final Fantasy game and it has a very odd position within the Final Fantasy franchise in the sense that it's sandwiched between Final Fantasy 4 and Final Fantasy 6. And they're much bigger celebrated Final Fantasy games than 5 is. And I think they're both remembered more than 5. And I think they're both kind of remembered more for their stories than 5. Which I think is one of the main reasons why 5 often feels overshadowed and forgotten. But I have a nostalgic relationship with 5. Um... It was the first Final Fantasy game that I ever played with crime. As a kid growing up, I was such a big fan of the PlayStation 1 Final Fantasy games, but they, there was always some mysticism surrounded them because they were called 7, 8, and 9. Those numbers aren't the first numbers if you count sequentially. What are these other Final Fantasies? And then, you know, I, w- I would read about them in gaming magazines if I could ever find a gaming magazine that was talking about something, you know... <laughs> from the 90s, you know, something t- talking about something retro. But I, was, I certainly became aware of them, but what I wasn't aware of was um, emulation. And I remember discovering that you could go online and download old games and play them. 
and it blew my little brain because back then you know as I was a burgeoning film fan I could go into like you know a video store with my older brother and he could show me Robocop and rent Robocop and then I'd watch Robocop films were just readily available and I think this is still a problem with games just how difficult it is to find old games that you you might want to play but when I discovered emulation when I was a kid I could go online and download these games that suddenly a world opened up to me and it remains one of my most nostalgic eras of my my gaming history just suddenly I had this slew of old titles and it didn't matter if they were Japan only or America only like if they didn't come out in Europe they were all available online and it was all illegal and seedy but I um, never grew up with a Super Nintendo I grew up with a Sega Mega Drive so I reveled in being able to play all these um, Super Nintendo games and there's a lot of classics from that era that I played with a keyboard first time emulating it uh, illegally online but my main focus at the time because my favorite gaming franchise at the time was easily Final Fantasy my my main focus was finding these old Final Fantasy games and just seemingly randomly the first one that I played was the fifth game didn't know anything about its history didn't know that it was a Japan only game didn't come out in America even that it was kind of uh underrated in that regard um you know i you know if 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 i had anyone to give me advice at the time they definitely would have pointed me towards six or four regarded as uh, the more important final fantasy games but the first of this era of final fantasy that i ever played was five but even outside of my history of it uh, final fantasy five is is just a really wonderful game and like the main thing to focus on with it initially i think is um this is the culmination of the job system which i've been talking about with a couple of the other ones it expanded on the system setup in Final Fantasy 3 which allowed you to change your character's classes and really mix and match and find a style that suited you. You could do that with 5 but but it perfected the system even further and made it even more malleable by by including the ability for your characters to retain skills from previous jobs that they were inhabiting so that you can make one character be a black mage for a while you know and black mages in Final Fantasy they sling spells they do your thunder your fire your ice but then as a black mage they could learn some spells that would become you know inherent to their character no matter what job they were so you could learn some spells as black mage and then make your character become a monk so now you have a monk who can use some black magic and you only had four um playable characters at a time in Final Fantasy V but this but this meant that the possibilities of what your characters were in battle were were so robust there was so much customization in it, and I still think to this day it's one of just, you know, in, in, it, in its sheer simplicity as well, just one of the best combat systems that Final Fantasy ever came up with. And it gives the game a very satisfying arc of progression in terms of leveling up your characters. You, really, you can really kind of transform your characters into the, the very specific type of powerful that you want, and it feels very good. And yeah, uh, yeah, like I said, to reiterate, it's the, the, the endless customization with it, you could play a game and then look at some other person's save file and uh, their characters would just have taken a very different shape and form in battle and I love that I still think it's a it's a brilliant battle system and I will say that you know Final Fantasy 5 is a game hidden in the shadows of 4 and 6 the two games is in between and this is a better battle system than both those games but 4 and 6 are very much um, remembered for their fantasy epics and I think Final Fantasy V is certainly another great fantasy adventure game from Squaresoft in the 90s. Uh, I think it's a little lighter. I think that's where its personality comes from. When Final Fantasy IV begins and you get a step out into the world map, 
the world map music is very evocative of the kind of character-driven drama you're you're about to set foot into. It's very, very melancholic. Well, you begin Final Fantasy V, and a, a meteor crashes, and you're there with your little chocobo buddy, and you get into the world map, and the music is just like kind of a hey ho, off we go on a little adventure. And I think that's a very representative of the game in comparison to some of its contemporaries at the time. That's not to say that Final Fantasy V doesn't revel into the kind of light fantasy drama of like of other Final Fantasy games. There's a character death in this game. There's a, one of your main characters dies. Um, you know, long before Final Fantasy VII became famous for doing that. Um, admittedly, it's not as impactful as Final Fantasy VII, but it, it, it's still. But overall, this game just feels more unfussy. It lets its playful side come out more than trying to be a downtrodden drama, which I respect. But yeah, for me, Final Fantasy V just has the position of, you know, most underrated Final Fantasy game, the, the one I like to champion the most, the one that I feel like doesn't have enough people having its back. It has uh, one of Nobuo Amatsu's most underrated scores. The music in this game is wonderful. I should be maybe be talking about the music for these games more in general rather than singling out Justin Five. Every one of them has fantastic music. But I think some of the most underrated Final Fantasy pieces of music are in Final Fantasy V. It has a fantastic soundtrack. It has one of my favourite um, Final Fantasy battle themes, not its main battle theme, even though its main battle theme rocks, um, called Clash on the Big Bridge, which is a big action set piece where your main characters are, um, have to make their way across this uh, big bridge, obviously, and they fight recurring Final Fantasy villain slash buffoon Gilgamesh, and it's both a very jaunty, ridiculous piece of music, but also this really badass battle theme, and I, I love it, it's such a fun piece of music. And Final Fantasy V in general is just a fun game. The lightness in its tone and its story and its um, traditional fantasy trappings are mixed perfectly with its um, genuinely brilliant battle system and brilliant mechanics. It's just a very easy to get into game, a, a very Moorish, very well-paced, very underrated game. Number six next. Oh golly gosh, this is running long. Thanks for sticking with me on this Final Fantasy adventure. I'm moving on to now what I believe to be my heavy hitters. These are the games that I really genuinely love more than um, some people I know, a lot of people I know. I prefer these Final Fantasy games over. Um, Growing up means you have to become aware of some intrinsic truths, you know, some uncomfortable truths that you have to kind of face and accept. And one of them for me was finding out that Final Fantasy VIII is divisive within the series. As a child, I had no awareness of that. Final Fantasy VIII was just an out-and-out masterpiece. But now, uh, with my older eyes, I can see absolutely why it's divisive. Uh, VIII had the thankless task of um, following Final Fantasy VII, kind of springboarding off that massive um, success that was Final Fantasy VII. And I think in that regard, it did a lot of things right. It kind of doubled down on a lot of the things that were really successful about Seven. Seven, um, it's funny to look at it now, but you know, on the PS1 graphics, but um, it was a big graphical showcase. Even though in gameplay you were playing as these little crude polygonal characters, Seven got famous for its FMV cutscenes when the game would stop to show a cinematic and it was like amazing graphics at the time. And Eight really doubled down on that and Eight became very um, famous for its FMV cutscenes and they are spectacular. And it really emphasised the cinematic nature of them. Some of them feel like uh, short movies in the middle of the game. Yeah, but maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. One of the reasons why I think Final Fantasy VIII, one of a few reasons why I think Final Fantasy VIII is quite divisive within the fanbase, is that it's, it's a very teenage story. 
Now, Japanese things like anime and video games often have teenage protagonists just because, just that's just because the way they do things. It's arbitrary. If you want to have a main character, he's usually like 17. If you want to have a main character with some backstory, 20, 21. If you want to have a mentor character who has to have a, a big backstory and has to be able to pass wisdom on to other characters, 32. Japan is often very strange in that regard uh, with some things. But what I will say as a compliment to Final Fantasy VIII, it, it is a very teenage story. It's um, it's a school-based um, story. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a weird fantasy school, but still, it, you play as um, a bunch of students in an, an academy um, called Balam Garden that kind of trains um, kids to become mercenaries. And what I will say as a compliment is that it's the only Final Fantasy game with teenage protagonist that feels like a teenage story. It feels like that there's a. It's not just arbitrary. There's a reason why you're playing as teenage characters. And I think a lot of people didn't connect with the protagonist, Squall, who's kind of a moody introvert. And we actually, a lot of his dialogue is, um, we, we, we get to see what he's thinking. And that kind of, you know, paints him as kind of a bastard. But I think it's all very intentional. He's, um, his arc is essentially that, he, you know, he doesn't know where he's from. He's an orphan and he doesn't like people. He's moody, he's introverted, but he, he's on the path to becoming a great leader. But since um, we get an insight into his inner thoughts, we kind of see that he's a, he's a bit of a rude bastard. He's a bit of an annoying bastard. But I don't know, 17-year-olds often are. And that's why I think, um, I, that's why I'm complimenting the game in a sense that it seems like a very deliberate choice to have all these characters be kind of 17, 18, and, and they have very kind of um, teenage uh, character traits um, put to the forefront of their of their story arcs. And I think that works re- I think that works really well. Like the character of Quistus, who is um essentially Squaw's teacher at the beginning of the game, but she's like only a year older than him. She's only eighteen. And that kind of seems like anime nonsense, like why is a teacher only an eighteen year old? But that's kind of a part of her arc. She she's a person who is young but regards herself as very mature, very old and but and we see we see her struggle to fit that role. Or the character of Irvine, who is um, a ladies' man who just uses a thick layer of bravado, and it's eventually revealed that he's just using it to shield just huge amount of anxiety and self-doubt. Or Zell, who's just a huge ball of energy and uh, affected machismo, and kind of belays a kind of a sensitive side. But but basically, what I'm trying to say is, I think a lot of people didn't connect with these moody kids, but now. Now that I'm an adult and kind of looking back at it, and I have played it a couple of times as an adult, I think, I think Final Fantasy VIII leans into, like I said, leans into these um, uh, the, these teenagers and the fact that they're angsty and unsure of themselves and finding themselves like, and is a lot more successful in it than a, a lot of JRPGs and a lot of a lot of games who try this exact thing. Because uh, video games, a lot of video games, a lot of Japanese video games will have you play as <laughs> Japanese teenagers. And I think I think Aid isn't praised enough for um, its more grounded characters, is how I think I'd put it. And romance has always been a, a part of Final Fantasy. And uh, the previous game, 7, um, re- romance was like, a big part of it. But uh, I think Aid is really where... I mentioned this earlier in, in the recording, but I think Aid is really when Final Fantasy just started becoming romance stories, like uh, to the point where uh, all Final Fantasy games have a kind of a symbol attached to them, um, attached to the logo. You know, Final Fantasy VII is a, is a big meteor falling to Earth, but um, 
yeah to out, kind of outwardly show what their intentions were for this for this game the the symbol of Final Fantasy 8 is our two lead characters Squall and Renoa embracing they were very balls faced about we are um, we are writing a love story here that that's very much our main focus and Renoa is uh, another one of the main characters she's kind of the opposite of Squall she's cheerful and outgoing and optimistic if if, if a bit naive and uh, there's a lot of the the, the center of this story is them slowly falling in love and i think that was one of the main bones of contention a lot of people had with this game was uh, whether the the love story worked and i'm kind of in two minds about it it does kind of lean into that um troublesome trope of the girl falling for the bad boy uh and he's not he's only portrayed as kind of an asshole and you kind of like you kind of see why he'd fall in love with her but why is um she falling in love with him and there's been a debate through the years of, you know, from people who would debate these things of whether, um, you know, Squall deserves Renoa or whether that uh, that that romance angle rings true. And I think I think it does and it doesn't. It's not it's not one of Final Fantasy VIII's um, most successful aspects as much as that game has writing on it. But I think I think it mostly works. And I think I think the arc of their romance is actually it's quite cute. One feather in this cap definitely being that it has one of gaming's no no gaming's all time greatest meet cute where um they have they have to go to a, a squall has to go to a dance at his school and he's like you know standing at the side being all introverted and aloof and she comes up and um asks him to dance and or forces him to dance with her and that's when I mentioned earlier that Final Fantasy VIII really leaned into these FMVs that feel like short stories and there was just this amazing cutscene of them dancing and Squall being really bad at it and being nervous and shy and well outwardly being just a, a gruff but you know he's nervous and shy and he can't do it and then you know her slowly kind of forcing him to dance and she gets better as it goes on and I think this is one of the things that I love about Final Fantasy 8 is um, the storytelling in Squaresoft was really um, getting much better at this point or at least they were definitely putting much more energy into it and that could be a bad thing for some people. Maybe the balancing act of gameplay and story was uh, getting a bit uh, askew at this point. But I adore Final Fantasy VIII's kind of um, confidence to stop the game for a little um, short story about where these two characters meet and uh, and they try to dance together. And it, it, it kind of makes you root for them much more for the rest of the game. And it's one of my absolute favorite parts of um, the whole Final Fantasy series. In fact, when I was a kid, I used to keep a save point just before that dance scene because uh, I, I used to like watch it because um, secretly, you know... Uh, when you're when you're kind of a, a little kid, but I don't know these days, but back in the in the nineties and the two thousands, and you'd be talking about Final Fantasy with your friends, you'd have to be kind of like, yeah, I love uh, the battling, and you know, oh, I I fought the strongest boss in the game and I won, and I wasn't really kind of telling people how much I've really just enjoyed these games as love stories. That's kind of my little uh, confession that I'm just telling now on on this podcast. I used to just love the the romance angles of these games, and that's kind of um in retrospect, you know one of the main reasons why I was um, so attached to them when I was a kid. I really loved these characters. But to talk about Final Fantasy VIII being divisive, it, would, it wouldn't ring true to just um, talk about the story elements. I think um, more so than that, the main reason why it's quite divisive within the fan base is some of its gameplay mechanics. And I, I think Eight is a little bit too complicated for its own good and has some ideas that don't quite work. It tried to kind of throw away a lot of... Um, popular elements of um the jrpg genre and the final fantasy genre like just small stuff like you know when you cast magic in final fantasy games it's you spend mp or magic points and that's just an easy way to do it but no and they got rid of that in final fantasy 8 and you um you have to draw magic from enemies 
So you could, if you wanted a cure spell, and you could draw three of them from an enemy, then you can use that three times, which is fine and no problem with that. It's just that the drawing of magic from enemies is incredibly tedious, and it slows that game down to a snail's pace sometimes. Where the best way to um, accumulate uh, magical spells is to literally just not attack enemies or not do anything else. It's just in battle, just draw incessantly from enemies, spend a turn to draw magic from enemies, and I get where they're coming from. I guess, but it in practice it really doesn't work. But the reason they wanted um, this uh, kind of you want they wanted you to accumulate an amount of spells is because the whole um, system in Final Fantasy VIII is based around um, junction, is what they call the junctioning magic to your defense to your attack. If you start junctioning fire to your defense, you can get strong against fire and stuff like that. And it's I think that's a really cool system. It's um, kind of badly explained in the game. This is like the I remember playing Final Fantasy VIII when I was a kid, and this was the first JRPG I played that has a tutorial at the beginning, and I was just scratching my head. I think I was just too young at the time. It's just, it's very up its own arse, and it's kind of, it has very long tutorials explaining its um, intricate systems. But I think it's more simple than um, it might seem, and I think it actually works. Um, I think uh, I think it's a cool system as soon as you get the hang of it. it, it it's a shame that it's attached to this drawing in battle thing that you did. To accumulate magic, you need to you need to do tedi- tedium. It's almost like the game is for, like it's like the energy of um, grinding for levels. Uh, you, to to get good or get strong in the game, you have to accumulate a lot of magic uh, by doing boring things. And I always hate that in games. I always hate that in JRPGs. And an aspect of it I really loved when I was a kid is you have to uh, you you get to collect GFs, um, which you know it's not. This is this is a Final Fantasy thing. You know, in real life, it took me twenty five years to collect a GF. <laughs> But it stands for Guardian Forces, and uh, they're the summons in this game. I haven't talked about summons in Final Fantasy yet. Um, most Final Fantasy games have give you the ability to summon um, monsters in battle that do attacks, and a lot of Final Fantasy games, weird enough, are you, the main story is often includes these summons in a big way. And Final Fantasy VIII is one of those the plot uh, that they end up becoming critical to the plot. But in, in gameplay wise. Uh, you can collect these monsters, and you can equip them to characters, and you can teach them abilities that. Uh, grant the characters new abilities and new stat boosts and that was a really cool aspect of it that I always loved in it and, and, and there's only 16 of them in the game but it really did feel, feel like a kind of a Pokemon collect them all thing um, it, it, it was fun to kind of go through the game and it was a good arc of progression to get more GFs especially. it's always good to tie um, getting stronger in a game to something like that like a collection of monsters it just feels good to see your screen fill up with them and not knowing which one you're going to get next and like oh look at this cool guy he is a train monster very good but the bottom line is i'll always stand up for final fantasy 8 i genuinely love it but i can absolutely see its faults and i see why it doesn't quite click for some people and i'm mostly sympathetic in that regard um towards the gameplay aspect aspects of it which i think half works half doesn't and kind of is just a bit of a mess but I'm very much a defender of Final Fantasy VIII as a whole, as a piece of work. I think it's too wholly unique. It has too much personality for me to ever like turn my back on it. Uh, I think it has a, a ton more personality than a lot of other JRPGs, uh, to be honest. Uh, the soundtrack is amazing as well. And uh, I think a long-time series composer, Nobuo Matsu, I believe, looks back very fondly on this soundtrack in particular, even in comparison to other ones. Because with the, with Final Fantasy VII, with the, the jump in media from going to 
cartridges on the Super Nintendo, suddenly onto the PlayStation 1. Um, they had more memory and uh, they could... And, and Nobu Amatsu was very um, excited about um, composing um, higher quality music. But I believe in Final Fantasy VII they hadn't quite cracked it yet, where he wanted to include like um, songs with lyrics and, and pieces of music with lyrics. And I think in, in Final Fantasy VII he was able to do one, the final battle um, music in that game. But uh, it took up far too much um, disc space. But by the time Final Fantasy VIII came out, like two years later, I think they'd cracked that. And he was able to... Um, do what would become a mainstay for the entire series uh, going forward. He, he wrote a <laughs> yeah, love ballad for it that be, kind of became the theme song of Final Fantasy VIII. It's called Eyes on Me, and I don't care. I love it. Uh, Squaresoft uh, slash Square Enix would end up having a, a, a huge library of these kind of love songs for a lot of their games, not even not even Final Fantasy, and Eyes on Me is still my absolute favourite. Uh, uh, sorry, Simple and Clean from Kingdom Hearts, you get the silver medal. But it's a, it's a, it's this it's this love song sang by um, Fei Wong, who who is a, a, a famous Hong Kong singer at the time, a Hong Kong singer slash actor. Actually, oh, watch um, watch her in a Chongqing Express by Wong Kar Wai, if you want to like you know fall in love with Fei Wong. Oh, so that's a, that's an absolute brilliant film. I should do a list of Wong Kar Wai films instead of Final Fantasy games. No, I'll crack on. But it's a song that tells a story from the game. It's um. God, I haven't even talked about Laguna. In Final Fantasy VIII, uh, the characters inexplicably collapse sometimes and have visions or flashbacks of this other character and his friends called uh, Laguna. And to dissect why that's happening later on in the plotline, um, spoilers, um, Laguna is Squall's father. Um, and it's kind of it kind of works for Squall's character arc of oh, he's an introverted dickhead in a lot of ways and he kind of learns um from watching this uh character laguna who he doesn't know is his father um and his, his kind of story arc and he's one of my favorite final fantasy characters because he's a happy-go-lucky uh soldier who doesn't like war who kind of uh you he's his arc of progression is sort of failing upwards but it's very important to final fantasy it's overall story eventually but um early on in laguna's um little um story within a story he escapes the battlefield that he's fighting on um to go to a bar with his buddies because his um his favorite lounge singer is singing um who he has a huge crush on called julia and uh, that it ends up being a kind of a, a doomed romance that never works out for t- those two there's a, there's a lovely scene where they, he goes up to her room but nothing ever happens and, and they end up going their separate ways but the twist of final fantasy VIII's narrative is they are the parents of both our main characters you know uh, Julia is Renault's mother and Laguna is Squall's father so pretty good for Renault and Squall that they didn't they didn't get together but Eyes on Me is a song written for the game that's from Julia's perspective uh, as she she knows that this this doofus soldier guy keeps coming to the bar to watch her sing and that she knows um, he's watching and then does he know that he, she's watching him as well? It's a lovely love song and um, Nobu Amatsu the composer I know he's like very proud of it but there's just a lot of gems in Final Fantasy VIII soundtrack in general. To kind of um, psych myself up for recording this podcast, I just over the last few days, I just kind of listened to Final Fantasy music whenever I was walking anywhere to the shop or I walked down to this lake I live by uh, these days, which is quite pleasant. But um, kind of just to demonstrate how good Final Fantasy VIII soundtrack is, I, I kind of intended to just listen to a smorgasbord of Final Fantasy music, and I think 80% of the time I ended up accidentally just listening to Final Fantasy VIII soundtrack. It's, it's, it's fantastic, even outside of um, its iconic love ballad. 
But yeah, not the most um, holy, beloved Final Fantasy game, but I'll always be in its corner. It actually had a reputation for a while in the 2000s because um, there was uh, people on the internet who had grown up with the SNES or NES era of Final Fantasies. Who, you know, it was that age of, uh, <laughs> early age of internet, um, uh, I don't know, video making and content making and uh, pop culture critique that mainly took the form of kind of... Um, <laughs> sweaty guys in their early 20s uh, doing um, video reviews by themselves with really like low-grade uh, recording equipment. It was, it was a strange age for the internet. But one of them uh, got a lot of traction. It was just a huge takedown of um, Final Fantasy VIII. And that kind of, um, from my point of view anyway, that kind of sullied that game's reputation for a long time. And, you know, it was very much in that uh, that era of, you know, it was one guy recording by himself, so he'd create characters who were also played by himself to kind of show up in his review or whatever and then stuff like that. It'd be like if I was doing this and I'd be like, yeah, I think Final Fantasy VIII is really underrated. I think it's a really good... Dr. Dickhead, what are you doing here? I'm invading your Final Fantasy VIII review because I think it's a shit game. It's not a shit game, it's misunderstood. Why are you really here, Dr. Dickhead? I want to tell you, Liam, I love you. I've always loved you. Like, Dr. Dickhead, I think you're one half piece of ass. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what am I doing with my life? Uh, moving on. And we're in the top five now, so number five. I've gone through a lot of classics so far, you know, a lot of games that I grew up with. But now, this high in the list, I am putting the most recent Final Fantasy game, the Final Fantasy VII Remake, which uh, is one of the two games that I snuck onto this list and I just snuck them on. Now, Owen and I already did an episode about this, so I, I, I'd like to direct you towards our Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VII Remake episode, but I still have a couple of things I want to say about it. The main thing is that while I think this game is imperfect, I kind of hold it up as a grand return to form for Square Enix. For me, personally, and it's all a personal opinion, isn't it, at the end of the day, this is the game that I love the most from them since, Jesus, Final Fantasy twelve. I think it's a, in 2006, I think it's a long time since I've been able to say that I unequivocally just uh, love um, a game from Square Enix and, and a game from Final Fantasy, while also admitting that it's, it's not quite perfect. But I think I'll begin with its most uh, controversial aspect and what I think is its um, strangest aspect and the, the one that I, I, I don't, I'm in two minds about still. Because I love Final Fantasy VII, the original, so much, you know, it hasn't appeared on this list yet, that's how much I love it, that I just sort of love the idea of a remake of it, of um, bringing those characters and that world into the into the modern era of gaming, I think it's a great idea, um, if only to introduce it to a whole, a whole new generation of players or people who may have missed it. Sometimes when you miss an old game, I always, I always advise people to go and play old games, but sometimes if you haven't played an old game when it came out, it can be quite jarring to go back and play something that can feel antiquated. So this is it's such a good opportunity for people to experience um, this story, these characters for the first time, and that's how it was advertised. It's not a remake of the entire game, it's a remake of the opening hours of Final Fantasy VII. Uh, ballooned out into, into a 30-hour, 40-hour game, which was controversial, but... I've always loved that idea. Personally, when it was when it was announced, I was like, "This is a great idea." Because Midgar, the section of the game that it's adapting, is brilliant. It's one of gaming's all-time greatest uh, locations, and expanding on that and um, and delving into it and making it more realistic and lived in 
in, in its depiction is such a great idea. And the Midgar section of the original Final Fantasy VII is, is it's only about three to four hours long, but it's just a kind of a roller coaster of different plot events and, and a really good pacing. Slow character moments to high octane set pieces full to, to, to whimsical parts where you hang around um, a market and try to dress up as a lady. So to kind of give more time to this uh, section of the game, to, to expand it out, I always thought it was a wonderful idea because I, I just love Midgar. And as advertised, you could play the Final Fantasy VII Remake without ever having played the original Final Fantasy VII and enjoy it until the end of the game, until the, the final hours. And I've kind of been spoiling Final Fantasy games willy-nilly here, but I'm not going to go into any real detail about that, I think, even though I think we did spoil it in our actual episode. So... I don't know, I don't know what side I'm on here. But at the 11th hour, this game very much becomes for Final Fantasy VII fans to the point where I don't know how much you'd get out of the ending of Final Fantasy VII Remake if you haven't played Final Fantasy VII. And my main feeling about that is that it's kind of a shame. I think it would be great if we didn't exclude people who haven't played Final Fantasy VII. And the narrative direction it ends up going in has me worried. I A year and a half removed from playing that game for the first time I've kind of softened on it a bit more and I'm kind of uh, excited about the future because uh, Final Fantasy 7 Remake is, is going to be a series it's going, it's going to recreate the whole of Final Fantasy 7 as a, a series of games which is um, another controversial aspect of it but that's, this is the reality we live in and and now knowing um, what, I, what I know about Final Fantasy 7 Remake 1 I, I am excited for the direction this um, these sequels might take but I'm also concerned that Square Enix, or at least the Square Enix that have been operating for the last 10 years, I'm just, I'm not optimistic about their ability to pull this off, basically, even while saying that I hope they do. But uh, this game is number five on my list. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly into it. I don't want to be uh, down on it. Uh, it, it. It's this high on my list. I love how much of um, a celebration of Final Fantasy VII this game is. Uh, no, that, you know, that doesn't really do it justice, because it's very much its own thing. But I love how it doesn't sully the spirit of Final Fantasy VII. I love how it gets its characters right and expands on them. Not that they were badly written, but they were obviously it was they were written more in shorthand. And add to this that Final Fantasy VII in the West had a kind of a famously um, little bit janky English translation. There was a lot of misspellings and awkward phrasing. So to see these characters brought to life, not only with amazing graphics, but with, um, with stronger writing and written in a way that doesn't step all over who they are because I've said this multiple times in the podcast but um, Square Enix kind of forgot what the characters of Final Fantasy VII were supposed to be like over the years when they appeared in other media like the Final Fantasy VII movie Advent Children or when they cameoed in uh, the Kingdom Hearts games they just didn't seem like themselves and they absolutely seem like themselves in, in this remake and, and not only seem like themselves but they're more human and I, I wouldn't say all the writing in Final Fantasy VII is wonderfully human and uh is a you know all around good, but I do think essentially with the quartet of main characters, with your Cloud, Aerith, Barrett, and Tifa, uh, they're brilliantly depicted, and I love them. And Midgar, the setting, uh, which is a, a city where the the upper class live on a on a plate um, that's suspended on massive pillars, and the lower class live in slums beneath it. Such a a, a kind of wonderfully sci-fi idea that at uh, the ps1 kind of you got to use your imagination to kind of do the heavy lifting of of kind of depicting midgar in your head on the ps1 and nubu amatsu's um amazing score kind of helped that as well you know his music was very evocative and let you uh get into um get into that place and the hand-drawn um, backgrounds of um 
Final Fantasy VII original are, are so wonderful. They're little little kind of pictures into this world. But now with modern graphics and, mod- and, and on PlayStation 4 and it's now on the PlayStation 5, they got to fully realise Midgar and I think it's absolutely beautiful. Like, it's like the biggest compliment I can give this game that there was points when I just stopped playing and just stood and moved the right analogue stick around. Just because I couldn't believe I was like standing in this world and I think a lot of that is because I have a, a kind of a childhood connection to this place and there definitely was some nostalgia of just seeing it upgraded into modern graphics. But um, even just beyond that, they did a great job of making Midgar feel lived in and detailed and places like the wall market and sector five which are just like a screen or two on the playstation one are so vividly real and alive um in this remake I, I, it's great I had such a you know that thing that people say you know new york is the is the main character in this but uh, midgar is very much a character in final fantasy 7 remake and it's brilliant and Square Enix, for years, like I said, have been trying to move away from the traditional um, turn-based battle system and uh, make more action games in their RPGs. And I think what they've been trying to do for years kind of culminates in the Final Fantasy VII Remake. And, and I think they finally got it right. And I think they did so by balancing the two kind of act- the action-based battles and the turn-based battles. And it, it's literally both. You, you do run around and um and you do moves and you fight and you fight enemies um and you can switch between your characters on the fly but you but you can also kind of stop everything to go into a menu where you can select your spells or your items or whatever and in, in the best battles in Final Fantasy VII Remake it manages to capture what's great about both um these ways of um doing JRPG battles uh, there's a boss battles late in that game that kind of for me kind of uh channel that kind of devil may cry type energy of a good action game and also the kind of, uh, <laughs> if you find to say, the high octane menu scrolling of uh, a good um, a good boss fight in a, in a traditional JRPG. I just love the battle system. It, it has a few falls whenever, whenever an enemy is flying and you don't have like a, a character who has projectiles in like a Barrett or Aerith or two projectile characters. If you're if you're fighting a flying enemy with Cloud or Tifa, the battle system just completely falls on its ass and it becomes really awkward but that's just minor quibbles i think for the most part it's just an excellent battle system and it's also challenging it's a difficult game which is nice as well um you can't rest on your laurels which i found in final fantasy 15 you can kind of just coast for a lot of that game because every action you make in battle is um attributed to the atb bar including items you, you sometimes find you have to wait till the bar fills before you can act and you sometimes find that you're in a real pinch and your characters are almost dead and you can't just, you know, start spamming potions, start throwing items and healing your characters. You've got to wait till the ATB bar goes up and that can make for some really tense situations. I just think it's, it's a really measured battle system and I think they really nailed it and uh, it really adds to how much I love this game and why I, I put this game this high. Like, you know, on reflection talking now, maybe it's too high. I, like, I put it above Final Fantasy VIII, one of my absolute childhood favourite games, but I think I just want to demonstrate that that Square knocked it out of the park with this one, and I can see why people might not like it, especially if people want a similar experience to Final Fantasy VII, the original, which this isn't, but I don't know, it really worked for me, and it made me um, happy, genuinely happy to play, be playing a Square Enix game that I liked again after all these years. And um, for a more um, detailed discussion on that, and with um, the dulcet tones of Owner Reardon, please listen to our episode about Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VII Remake, but I think I'll move on for now. Number four. Listen to my story. This may be our last chance. Hey, that was me doing an impression of the opening line of the fantastic, the wonderful Final Fantasy X. 
Final Fantasy X came out literally 20 years ago. And it's funny because I regard it as the last traditional Final Fantasy game ever made. And it's 20 years old. That is crazy. And it's it's making me look into the mirror and... Is that black ooze coming out of my eyes? But at the time, it was regarded as such a departure for the series in a lot of ways. It, it made some controversial changes, which is crazy now, um, seeing as how much the series would change. It's the story of an effeminate jock named Titus, or Titus, who gets sucked into the world of Spira and ends up having to go on a pilgrimage with the summoner Yuna and her retinue of eclectic characters because they need to kill a gigantic ancient creature called Sin. And the world of Spira is stuck in this cycle where a summoner kills Sin, he goes away for a few years, and, and it, and it, which leads into a time called the Calm, and then he inevitably returns and he starts like waging destruction on the country and another summoner needs to go on a pilgrimage and uh, yeah it's a it's a cyclical thing that the, the the world is stuck in and titus ends up joining the summoner yuna this time on her pilgrimage and one of the controversial changes final fantasy X made was that it got rid of the world map such a mainstay of the jrpg genre is that you 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 might begin in a town or something like that, but you eventually uh, get onto the world map. Big, wide, open and green. And although Final Fantasy games are, you know, relatively linear for the most part, there would always come a point where you'd get free reign of this world map. You'd get an airship and you can uncover secrets and you can maybe go places where the main story didn't um, ever bring you. But it always felt like you were in a big, wide open world in Final Fantasy games, regardless of how much they, you know, kept you on a, on a singular path. But Final Fantasy X got rid of the world map entirely and the entire game is completely linear. No world map, you just go from place to place to place. And I criticized Final Fantasy XIII ages ago um, as being too linear. But I will now um, turn around and praise Final Fantasy X for the same thing. Because what's great about it is that it doesn't feel like um, a deliberate effort just to change something just for the sake of it. Just to, or maybe get rid of the world map um, to keep it simpler or anything like that, it feels like it's tied to the narrative they came up with. Yuna's Pilgrimage, which uh, your main character Titus is a part of, it just feels like an inexorable march forward. She has to go to temples along the way and um, gather uh, aeons, which are the summons of this uh, Final Fantasy, and eventually make it to the ancient city of Xanarkin, where she needs to um, kill Sin. And it makes sense for a story like that to be linear because it is. she has a set path that she must go on and that's her destiny, that's your destiny as part of her, her retinue. And the really great narrative trick that Final Fantasy X pulls is changing the context of your journey. Final Fantasy X is another one of the great love stories in Final Fantasy and it's very much about Titus falling in love with Yuna and vice versa as, um, as they go on this pilgrimage. But... The context of her mission, of her divine destiny, has changed um, about two-thirds through the game. And all the characters, even Yuna herself, know this. It's, it's only you, your main character, Titus, who doesn't. And it's the fact that when summoners uh, do the, the, the final spell, or whatever you want to call it, to kill Sin, they die. It's a, it, it's a self-sacrifice um, to bring a few years of peace to the world of Spira. And since Final Fantasy X is structured as this, you know, straight march forward a mission that must be completed to kind of pull the rug out uh, from underneath both you the player and Titus's feet at that point is a great is a great story beat and suddenly the the linear aspect of the game 
kind of feels like a tragedy and it's like you don't want to go forward anymore and when you finally reach your destination which the game has been you know heralding you towards the for its entire playtime it's not a big triumphant moment anymore and there's a wonderful sequence when you finally reach Lanarkand and um, it's just really sad music playing and it even plays during battles and the fact that you you the player maybe 30 20 hours ago you, you really want to get to this place you really want to you really want to kill sin because you see sin's destruction throughout the game you see him um, level villages and you see lives lost and to transform it into a kind of a, a tragic moment is is brilliant and i don't think you would have got that as efficiently as elegantly if final fantasy 10 was structured like other final fantasies where it was a, a big world map that you could go off the beaten path for a little bit and before you having to go to your um designated next destination i think it suits the game usually to be completely linear and final fantasy 10 would mix it up in other ways too it would get rid of the active time battle system which i kind of briefly mentioned the final fantasy 7 remake there but uh, the battle systems in final fantasy games um from 4 onwards um were kind of det- your actions in battle were determined by um a bar actually it all worked under the hood in 4. The, the bar wasn't like a thing you could see on the screen until Final Fantasy V. And when the bar reaches, each character has their own bar, and when it reaches the top, your character gets to make an action. Final Fantasy X got rid of that, and it had more of a kind of um, turn-based system, uh, ironically enough, where it was literally, you could see on the side of the screen, this is Titus's turn, this is Yuna's turn now, and you have to, this is enemy A's turn, enemy B's turn. And you could manipulate uh, that by, you know, um, knocking enemies back down that bar and, uh, you know, taking away their, their turns. And it made for um, punchier, faster battles and uh, a subtle degree of strategy. I think it's a really good system and it, it kind of it kind of was helped by the fact that um, you can switch out players mid-battle in Final Fantasy X, which was another major change. You can have three players on the field at one time, but if you want to swap out characters, including your main character, Didas, you can at any time. And it had a really Byzantine progression system for the characters in the form of uh, the sphere grid there was no uh, traditional like levels in that for um, your characters getting more powerful in battle there was a huge grid that you had it almost looked like a board game that you had to work each character through and in each um, node of um, this grid they could learn um, either different abilities or they could um, up their attributes and in and not in the Japanese version uh, weirdly enough but uh, in the version that uh, we would have played in the west there was a um, an expert sphere grid you could choose at the beginning of the game um, which really made made that system completely open-ended and you could um, kind of power up your characters any way you wanted and kind of turn your characters into any class you wanted through this grid kind of hard to um, explain and maybe conceptualize but it was a really good system especially on um, the expert sphere grid mode and every game and its mother these days has some kind of system like this it almost feels like kind of a skill tree where you know even if it's an action game or anything you you're always like leveling up characters and learning skills but i always look back at the sphere grid as just a very unique and memorable one but it was a very i regard it as another one of um, final fantasy X's oddities at the time another way it was stepping away from traditional final fantasy and this game was fully voice acted and uh i the performers did a great job in this game you have the likes of a uh, veteran voice actor john dimaggio in the cast he, he actually does two of uh, the main characters in your in your party, he, he's famous for voicing like Bender from Futurama, and he voices um stoic giant cat bodyguard Kimari, who's um, endlessly loyal to Yuna and protector, and he voices a um, kind of best friend character slash heart of the team Waka, who one of his main character traits is. Hold on, I've written down here. 
he's racist, but by the end of the game, he's not. But like I said, Final Fantasy X has a relatively simple story in comparison to other Final Fantasies, but like uh, most games from, um, from this genre, it has a very convoluted third act. But what I always find about JRPGs in general is that despite how convoluted they get, there's always like the heart of the story that you can latch onto. And again, Final Fantasy X is just a, a good love story. And what I really love about it is that it has a kind of a tragic ending. Now, it has a happy ending for the world of Spira. And, you know, your, your adventuring throughout the course of the game does uh, lead you to save the world. But uh, in terms of like other Final Fantasies, uh, it has a bittersweet ending. Because for reasons that are perhaps too convoluted to get into at length here... Um, Titus, he's not around anymore at the end of the game. Uh, the, him and Yuna have to have a, a tragic goodbye. And that's one of the things I really dislike about Final Fantasy X-2 as well, if we can go back to X-2 for a second, is that in, if you 100% X-2, you can get like a true ending that kind of um, ends up reuniting uh, Yuna and Titus. And I always hated that. One of maybe the reasons why Final Fantasy games shouldn't have direct sequels. Don't clean up an ending to, to make it like the happiest it can be, you know. That's the great thing about Final Fantasy X's ending is that it ends on this very bittersweet note. And it's a wonderfully emotional ending. And it definitely feels right for Final Fantasy X, which, like I said, is so structured around going on this pilgrimage and then the game changes the context of the pilgrimage that you're not, you're not going towards a glorious final battle. You're going towards, you know, the sacrifice of a 17-year-old girl who, who's lumbered with this destiny from a religious order. And I think it would feel disingenuous if the game didn't end on some kind of like level of tragedy, but it's so clever in the way that it ends with saving Yuna's life, breaking this horrible cycle, but you know, Titus sacrifices himself in order to do so. And that's always been one of my favourite things about Final Fantasy X, and one of the things I remember most about it. There's a good father and son story um, coursing through this as well, where Titus's dad, years before, kind of went through exactly what he was going through but maybe wasn't quite as a good guy and Titus is always kind of comparing himself to his dad and has a complicated relationship with him there's good character stuff in this game essentially and in a very Final Fantasy way you might have to dig through um how convoluted the story is like you know I like I said I won't go into it but the reason why Titus isn't around after the end of the game is because he's a dream he's a dream of a destroyed city and it's all stuff like that but I think if you peel it away and that stuff is still fun don't get me wrong but if you peel it away uh, the best Final Fantasy games, I think, are still very good on a character level like this. And I think uh, I think I got to the heart of what makes Final Fantasy X so good there, but um, maybe I'll just um, end it on um, the compliment that you can play an underwater sport called Blitzball. That's kind of a, a side quest slash minigame that runs through the game and you have to amass a team. And that is the kind of nonsense I like in my Final Fantasy games. 10 out of 10. Number three. Okay, time to talk about the head honcho of the Final Fantasy series. The most famous one, the most popular one, Final Fantasy VII, of course. And it's a game that's become so popular that, you know, a lot of people like to shit on it all the time. I feel like no content creator out there who's doing stuff on JRPGs can just uh, make a video of a JRPG without, you know, shitting on Final Fantasy VII first by, you know, almost proving their credentials by saying, I don't like Final Fantasy VII. You know, you get a video kind of like, Hey, I'm JRPG fan 95 welcome to my channel. To begin with, I have to say that I have played Final Fantasy VII and I think it's terrible. If you've played it, you're either old or stupid or subhuman pond scum. How, how dare this game define this genre? 
it's been improved on by almost every single piece of art that's come out after it. I spit on Final Fantasy VII. And now, here's my list of all the reasons why Xenoblade Chronicles 2 is one of the best JRPGs out there. Number one, one of the main characters has four tits, if you think about it. But I will concede that Final Fantasy VII is overrated. It's one of the benchmark landmark games that has to be overrated. It's so beloved that there has to be some degree of um, undue adoration towards it, perhaps. It came out at such a perfect time. Uh, not only was it the first... Um, Final Fantasy game to be out worldwide, but like I said, it came out on the on the PlayStation One at a state at a stage when gaming was growing up and it was kind of a dark cyberpunk looking thing with amazing graphics for the time and uh, a lot of people, myself included, had never played something so story driven. So it just entered people's lives at the right time, got their hooks into them. And there's a lot of kids and adults alike who played Final Fantasy VII at the time who had never played anything like it. But my stance has always been that Final Fantasy VII is the popular one. It's the it's the big one. It's the one that maybe gets, you know, a little bit too much attention from Square Enix in, in comparison to its brethren. Not just because it was perfect timing, it came out at the right time. But just based on its own strengths, it was just this perfect storm. And although I hate to say it, in, in some ways, I think there's a reason why so many people have latched on to these characters, you know, in comparison to 8 or 9 or whatever. The story of stoic amnesiac cloud strife and his nemesis, the long-haired katana-wielding Sephiroth and poor tragic Eris. It just resonates with people because this is good stuff. I'll single out Eris or Aerith for a second because one of the most famous things uh, about Final Fantasy VII uh, at this point, all these years later, is that she dies in it and it was a big uh, shocking moment. I remember playing it as a child and it was huge. It was my uh, Luke, I am your father, Darth Vader moment uh, in games, you know? But when the game's writer, uh, Kazushige Nojima, was writing Final Fantasy VII, he was still kind of reeling from, or still very much affected by the death of his mother. So, so the story goes. And that's very much apparent in the bulk of the game's themes, but very much so in the death of this one main character. And I think Eris's death has become so kind of famous and so uh, popularly known that it's just kind of... Um, a distant plot point to a lot of people now. It's just a thing Final Fantasy VII is known for. But it was actually really well handled within the game itself. Eris dies at the end of uh, Disc 1. The game is split into three discs. So there's still a lot of game after her death. It's not like a shocking moment in the finale or anything like that. And there was also a lot of game before her death. And she is absolutely one of the main characters. And she is, you know, arguably the main love interest for our main character Cloud. And she's like the heart of the team. And, and a lot of the main narrative is based around her. She is... Her lineage is that she's descended from um, a race of people called the Setra or the Ancients, and that's a big deal in the narrative of Final Fantasy VII, so she's central to the plot. And that kind of helps her death feel sudden and unexpected. But in talking about gameplay, she's in your party for the entire game, and you're leveling her up, and you're, you know, equipping her magic, and you're learning her special move limit breaks, and you're, you know, she is a member of your party. So when she finally dies at the end of Disc 1, and she is murdered... And she she doesn't really sacrifice herself in any grand way. The main villain, Sephiroth, stabs her in the back and she dies and there's no final words to Cloud. It's, it's very sudden. And then after that, she's just not in the game anymore. Narratively, of course, she's remembered and it, her, her, her ghost, so to speak, hangs over the rest of the story of the game and it affects our main character Cloud and all the other main characters in big ways. But 
gameplay wise you've just put all this effort into leveling up this character and putting time into the character and she is just snatched from you and i think that is the right way to do it in a game I mentioned that our main character dies in Final Fantasy V and after he dies his granddaughter takes his place in your party and she's given all his abilities and all, all the leveling up that you've done for him has just transferred to her and I, I've played other JRPGs like uh, just one that sticks in the memory is uh, Grandia 2 that has a main character you know sacrifice himself dramatically and he dies and all his EXP is kind of given to you to distribute into the other members of your party and that, that kind of works for that because I guess he kind of sacrificed himself and that's almost like his gift to you but what I think they were going for with Final Fantasy 7 was um for you the player to kind of feel the unfairness of it the unfairness of death not to get too morbid on this uh ranking of Final Fantasy 7 but one thing I found with experiencing death and even if it's um a death that comes after a, a long illness is that it always feels sudden and unfair and I would never champion Final Fantasy VII as being um, an essential depiction of the theme of death or anything like that. But Eris's sudden, unfair death is extremely well handled. And I think it's one of the main reasons why it's remembered um, all these years later. And I think the, the game side of Final Fantasy VII helps with that. Kind of losing your progress with a main character is another one of those great shorthand story beats that you can kind of derive from gameplay. And it's also the fact that um, Eris is just not one of the character archetypes that that die, if that makes sense. Like if a mentor character dies in a, in a story like this, it's it's rarely shocking. She is, you know, a young woman. She's already had a really hard life, but she's happy, go lucky. She's the heart of your team, and she's the main love interest. And her death is truly shocking. And it's a shame that it's become so well known these days because. And I suppose I'm not helping by just spoiling it straight up in this um, podcast for people who haven't played the game. But since we did an episode on Final Fantasy VII before, and uh, you can kind of, I kind of want to direct you towards that episode if you want me here to talk about materia and other stuff and, uh, and some of the the best bits of that game. It's kind of what I wanted to single in on when I'm talking about Final Fantasy VII. Just how um, the tragedy of Eris's death is, um, despite it becoming just common knowledge among gamers i think it's one of the i think it's one of the best um story moments in gaming history and it's completely earned and final fantasy 7 has a kind of it has kind of a themes of life and death uh, told through its um environmentalist plotline it's kind of about it's the first final fantasy game that would trade an evil empire for like uh an evil corporation who were destroying the planet by um um you know sucking the life out of it in, in very very literally in this in fantasy form and even though Final Fantasy VII kind of, can kind of feel like a hodgepodge of ideas, you know, in, in, in terms of, let's say that you use Spira from Final Fantasy X as an example, which, you know, which I said, you have you make a linear pilgrimage through. It feels like a country. It, it, it feels like something kind of more real. Final Fantasy VII, you go from like, you go from like, here's the tropical town. Here's the gigantic amusement park. Here's the snow town. It's just kind of a, a lot of, um a lot of archetypes for these kind of locations so it doesn't feel much like a unified world but that you often um find um the evil corporation shinra have kind of built on the world like the the city of midgar has an upper layer that's you know covering the the bottom layer or the slums you have a kind of a, a town that that has a gigantic military city with a giant cannon sticking out of it um built built over it you have that that amusement park i mentioned is built over kind of a town in a desert that's now become a prison it, it, it's a lot of stuff like that and it kind of 
it helps to make this kind of stereotypical JRPG world where in these games you kind of want to have just a variety of different locations. I think Final Fantasy VII does have a kind of a, a chain that kind of links it all together in a, in, a, in a very satisfying way. Kind of you and your buddies are on a mission to save kind of a, a dying world and it feels like it. it's portrayed well in the game. And that you'd lose someone halfway through that mission I think is just very well handled and like... And it just kind of ties back into to my idea that I think Final Fantasy VII is as popular as it is in comparison to other Final Fantasy games, in, in comparison to other JRPGs, because it has a lot of stuff like this. I think people really do connect with it, and I think people continue to connect with it. I think people connect with it through the remake a lot as well, and I, I think there's a lot of people who've kind of discovered that game. I think it's bigger than the time it was made in, you know, 1997. I think it, I think it's sort of timeless. And I'm not quite willing to put it as my number one Final Fantasy game personally. Number three ain't bad. But I absolutely see why it's the most revered Final Fantasy game. I'm, I'm, I'm not shocked by it at all. And I think it deserves it. But like I said, we have an episode about it. Um, am I being lazy? You decide. Okay, the silver medal, number two. For my second favorite Final Fantasy game ever, I get to say the same thing I just said. Um... We have covered this on the podcast before um, in our favorite games of all time episode. Owen chose it for his favorite game of all time and he um, absolutely conveyed, probably better than I could, all the, all the reasons why this game is great. But it's Final Fantasy IX. And I think I said uh, to him and Jonathan in that recording that um, for me, Final Fantasy IX, it's hard to explain, but it's kind of ex- it takes the form of exactly I want a JRPG to, to be. And in in terms of how long it dwells on characters, how long it dwells on locations that you visit, um, just the, the kind of rhythm of it, the cadence of it, I I just it's it's my ideal Final Fantasy game. It's my ideal JRPG, and, and I'm I'm still putting it number two, but still. And at the time, it was considered a throwback. It was made by series creator Hironobu Sakaguchi, who hadn't like uh, taken the helm on one of these. Like He'd been involved in all of them, but he hadn't actually taken the helm creatively on any Final Fantasy game since, I believe, the fifth one. So he'd kind of taken a, a kind of a backseat position, but this was kind of um, his um, return to the forefront of his own franchise. And I believe it wasn't meant to be a main number to Final Fantasy game initially. It, was going to, it, wasn't, it wasn't going to be like number nine in the, in the main series. But it eventually ended up did being it being that. And after Final Fantasy VII changed the series dramatically, and then Final Fantasy VIII kind of continued on in the same vein as VII, uh, it was seen as like uh, like I said, a throwback to the old school days of Final Fantasy and all the tropes that you get from um, old school Final Fantasy, which I think I've managed to talk about this long without mentioning a lot of the tropes. But you have like you know medieval fantasy settings, uh, magical flying airships. Uh, a plotline that resolves around uh, MacGuffin, MacGuffins that take the form of magical crystals. That was all par for the course in old Final Fantasy. And Nine returned to like each and every one of those things I just mentioned, but blended it with the more, at the time, modern sensibilities of a Final Fantasy game, which that Final Fantasy had become in the PS1 era, and arguably in, uh, in Final Fantasy VI on the Super Nintendo too. And it's because of this kind of um, best of both worlds, best of all the worlds kind of aspect of Final Fantasy IX that um, it's always the one that I think of. If, if someone had never played a Final Fantasy game before, it's uh, always the one that I would point them to. I think it's the perfect representative of everything I personally love about Final Fantasy. I'm not even going in and kind of analyzing whether it's the 
representative of everything that kind of works with Final Fantasy as a game. But just everything that I love is kind of um, perfectly conveyed through Final Fantasy IX. And it worked out recently. Um, uh, Morrissey, who had never played a Final Fantasy game before, recently played Final Fantasy IX and he absolutely adored it and it warmed the cockles of my heart. Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VIII were led by very stoic, moody characters, uh, Cloud and Squall, and it was um, very deliberate to not go in that direction with Nine. and the main character is, is called Zidane, and he's... Um, very optimistic, very very free-spirited, happy-go-lucky, and uh, and it was a breath of fresh air at the time. And we talked about this in the Final Fantasy IX episode, but what was great about how the story of Final Fantasy IX is structured from a character point of view is that uh, all the other main characters kind of orbit around Zidane, and he kind of affects them all, and it, it, it's his inherent goodness that ends up affecting all of them. And then it turns that around in the third act when when the the final when the stereotypical Final Fantasy convoluted stuff starts coming at you, assimilating planets and clones and all that, and Zidane finds himself at his lowest moment, and all his friends who he's helped along the way come to his rescue. It's very simple stuff, um, but like I I always say, very simple stuff when filtered through the medium through interactive medium of gaming can uh, can can be much more resonant and the fact that this moment in the plotline occurs when you are battling enemies as Zidane who's completely lost his sense of self and he's completely just lost his, his touch of reality and he's just completely forlorn the fact that you're battling these enemies and your party members have been with you through the whole game jump in with you and then you start controlling them to, and the battles become easier it's such a, a great way to convey that moment and I I I've brought that kind of thing up a couple of times um, in this recording and it's something I love. Uh, you can tell the best story ever um, through any way you want with games. Uh, games games can be um, receptacles for traditional writing, for traditional filmmaking, but uh, there's ways that games can heighten story moments and the ways that can help storytelling. And um, this is another one. This is another great one that Final Fantasy has done. And Final Fantasy IX just has this wonderful um, cartoonish art style with very um, <laughs> deformed characters. Deformed might be too negative a word, but they're very stylized characters. And it's another aspect of it that I personally find uh, quite timeless. If you play the HD re-release of Final Fantasy IX, even though it's a PS1 game, um, these characters with their big, blocky, chunky designs, they still look great. And then you add to that the um, pre-rendered backgrounds. This is still when um, Final Fantasy games were having their backgrounds painted, and they're just so vivid and alive. I think... Final Fantasy IX, it looks like a, an amazing cartoon all these years later. It's another reason why I point people in the direction of it, because for a game that's um, 20 plus years old, I think personally it's aged very well. It's kind of slow paced in its battles would be my biggest criticism. Uh, kind of a PlayStation 1 chugging to load those battle screens every little time can get very tedious. But even that's kind of alleviated in the modern um, remake of Final Fantasy IX, a re-release of Final Fantasy IX, because you can actually speed up battles anytime you want or speed up the entire game. So I um, will direct you towards our favourite games of all time episode to hear um, Owen and us talk about um, Final Fantasy IX more and just leave it on that. This It's easily my second favourite Final Fantasy game of all time and yeah, just to reiterate, if you've never played Final Fantasy, if you've been listening to this list and you've been listening to me spoiling every one of them, but if you're curious, I do think Nine is the best place to start, although my god. Whichever one takes your fancy, whichever one you found interesting, play that as well. But uh, 9 is always the one I champion to be the, the first one. And oh my gosh, here we are, number 1. The game that I believe to be the best out of all the 15 main Final Fantasy games, not including 11 and 14, and including 10-2 and 7 Remake. Is that what I'm going to call this episode? With that? No, probably not.
Final Fantasy VI on the Super Nintendo. So the story goes, it was kind of handed to younger staff, uh, younger blood who were working for Squaresoft at the time. Like I said, the creator of Final Fantasy, Hironobu Sakaguchi, the last game he directed before 9 was 5, so kind of 6 was handed to kind of a new team, so to speak, and they imbued in it a youthful vigour, I would say. Or uh, at the very least, it didn't feel like any Final Fantasy game before it. Now, we were still on the Super Nintendo, we were still working in sprite work, so it was still top-down, kind of crude 2D graphics, but amazingly beautiful, vivid sprite work. But it's really just in the tone of the game, in the kind of... We hadn't gone full cyberpunk uh, sci-fi stuff like we would with Final Fantasy VII yet, but it was absolutely a step out of the traditional medieval fantasy setting of previous Final Fantasy games into a more kind of industrial era. And Final Fantasy VI is uh, set in a world where magic once existed, but it's been long extinct, and there's a an evil empire who's trying to um, recreate it uh, for their nefarious reasons. And at the beginning of the game, you play as a character called Terra, but Six is very interesting for having um, more of an ensemble cast as it goes on. Terra gets you into the story, and she remains very key to the narrative going forward, but it... Uh, as you collect more characters, it, it really opens up into an ensemble piece. And Final Fantasy VI has the most main characters of any Final Fantasy game ever. There's a there's a load of them. I replayed it for the first time in years during um, 2020. And what really struck me the most about it was how, how well it defines those characters with um, very little work. The kind of um, simplicity in their writing, yet... They're all very human, and I really, really admire that about the game, that it has all these main characters. And they might not be the most richly drawn characters ever made, they might not be the most complex characters, but they all have their own arcs, and, and you know, they all have their own personalities, and you know who they all are. And it really was a step forward for um, storytelling in the Final Fantasy franchise. And I love um, when Final Fantasy games and JRPGs have the confidence to, um, you know have story-driven set pieces and that kind of came from Final Fantasy VI. There's a famous opera scene where your characters um, for crazy story reasons have to infiltrate an opera and uh, one of your main characters Celeste has to go on stage and be the main actress and it's all just such a wonderful set piece, a wonderful story moment on a console that could only still do very crude 2D graphics but they, almost like Final Fantasy VI refuses to be limited by the time it was made in and it reaches for the stars. And Nobu Uematsu um, wrote this six minute long piece of music for this sequence. And this was before he could get any voices into his games or anything like that. But it's still just this evocative, wonderful piece. And that's kind of representative of what I really love about Final Fantasy VI. That it, that it was a 1994 game for the Super Nintendo that refused to be restrained by anything. It's so ambitious in in, both in, in its narrative and how much how much characters it has. And in, it, in its soundtrack, Nobu Uematsu made a masterpiece of a soundtrack for this game. Final Fantasy VII has the famous last boss um, music, One Winged Angel, which is gone on to have a life of its own beyond Final Fantasy it's in Kingdom Hearts it's in it's in Smash Brothers now but he wrote this last boss music for Final Fantasy 6 this huge long epic and it's so amazing and it's and it's just it's emblematic of this feeling I have about Final Fantasy 6 that no one working on it cared that they were making this game for a 16-bit console they were going to make the best story they could they were going to they were going to make the best soundtrack they could they were going to do everything as well as they could and it really shows it's just so much more ambitious than the time it was made in and the console it was made on. 
and that ambition um, goes towards its um, most famous um, story moment as well. In Final Fantasy VI, the main villain is called Kefka, and again, famous Final Fantasy villain Sephiroth from Seven is kind of he's the most popular guy, and he's cool. I love him, but uh, Kefka is is that kind of villain where you're kind of um, the cool kid Final Fantasy fan. If you go like Kefka is my favorite villain. And he's kind of this clown-like uh, general for the the main bad guys. But what, what he's not the deepest villain. But what's so great about him is for like a game like this, he's so cruel. He's so kind of horrible and vicious, and he he's just a really um, imposing villain. In the sense that you you really don't know what he's going to do. He's a loose cannon. And Final Fantasy VI gre- greatest narrative trick was to let him win halfway through the game. You reach this big floating island. Uh, the storyline has lasered into this big dramatic moment when you have to fight to get to the end of end of this island, and it feels like it could be the end of the game. If you're a kid like me, you had no idea. You thought it could be the end of the game, and you have to stop Kefka from essentially just whatever fucking around with these evil statues that's going to unleash hell, and you lose. Your main characters lose. Kefka wins. And the world gets destroyed. Not destroyed, destroyed, but it kind of brings across a new age called uh, the Age of Rune. And boom, fade to black one year later. I don't know if I can convey how huge this felt. One year later, in a Final Fantasy game, a time skip, your characters lose. The bad guy wins. And I think a time skip can always be um, an effective narrative tool when used correctly. But I also believe that it's a great one for games to use. Because a lot of games, especially like going back here to the Super Nintendo era, a lot of games, you know, couldn't rely just on, you know, writing. And they, sh- they certainly couldn't rely on, you know, their characters emoting. But they could tell their story through other means, such as, you know, the places you visit, you know. Like the villages you go to in Final Fantasy VI and, um, and the people you meet. So what a kind of a, a wonderful left turn in a narrative to skip one year later and the whole world has gone to shit. And the tragedy of all that is conveyed brilliantly by you having to explore this world again, except it's in ruin now and the happy villages you were once in are are downtrodden, you know, wrecked places. And what Final Fantasy VI asks you to do for this section of the game is find all your main characters again. This section of the game begins when you're playing as Celeste, that character I mentioned who sang in the opera, and she's like she doesn't feel like the main character of the story up to this point. Terra does. Terra is who most of the narrative hinged on, but you don't begin as Terra, you begin as Celeste. And slowly but surely you, you start this new chapter of the game and you have to go recollect all your main characters and you have to go find where they what they've been doing for the last year or where, where they are. And honestly, in a game in a story-driven game, you have to do very little work to make that interesting. That is just inherently going to be interesting to have a player spend 20 hours in this world with this team of characters um, that they grow to love and then ruin that world and fling the characters all about for you to find again and find out what they've been doing in the Internum year. That's just going to be great. Uh, I mentioned in our um, Ocarina of Time episode that Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time um, uses this wonderfully as well. That game skips ahead seven years and it's kind of a better story because of, of, of that plot because you you play the game and you rediscover a world you know but but different and I I have to believe it must have been inspired by Six that did it uh, so wonderfully a few years before and it has to be said that this section of the game as well is much more open-ended than the, the kind of linear path um, the game had you going through the first half of the story where 
you can you travel you just four characters who you have to get and then you get an airship and you can kind of travel around as you will and kind of discover for yourself you know what's happened to all your old friends and they're usually in uh, strange situations or definitely not in the best headspace because you know they lost a year ago and the kind of under the hood gameplay reason why you're doing this is because there is a, a final dungeon called Kefka's Tower which is a gigantic evil tower that Kefka has erected as a symbol of his own evil and his own victory. And yeah, you want to go around up your friends because, you know, you love them, but the gameplay reason why you're doing it is that um, you need a lot of party members to um, conquer Kefka's Tower. And Kefka's Tower is a dungeon that can be visited um, pretty much straight away in the world of Rune in, in the second half of this game, um, as soon as you have four party members at least. But it requires um a lot of um character a lot of party members you need to split them into three teams so you actually don't need to recruit every one of your main characters you can leave plot strands untugged um unresolved you just need to be able to cobble together any kind of form of three teams and that leads into a very long final dungeon where you need to continuously switch between three teams to solve puzzles one team needs to stand on a switch uh, to open a door for another team and so forth um to finally um fight Kefka again round two and it's one of the most meaningful final bosses uh, I think in Final Fantasy history just because you had lost and like I said earlier um, Nobuo Uematsu wrote this mini rock opera for it called uh, Dancing Mad that plays over this very lengthy final boss and how the final boss works is uh, you choose your characters all your characters if you have all of them it could could be 12-13 characters you choose them in, uh, in the order of how useful you think they are and you you fight Kefka in teams of four, and when one of your character dies, if one of your character dies, he gets replaced by the next character you chose. So it actually feels like all your characters are fighting Kefka for the final boss. And what's great about it is that if your character dies, you don't have a chance to use a phoenix down or cast a life on him. You can't revive him. He's out of the fight, and your next character jumps in. So if you start doing badly, your team becomes less useful. And I, it's one of those boss fights that actually plays better or seems better the worse you do because it starts becoming more desperate as kind of uh, less useful characters of battle jump in but yes uh, Nobu Amatsu wrote Dancing Mad for it and it's perfect for the, the battle is so long and it's it's this crazy piece of music with all these different tiers and it kind of ends in this kind of um, mournful almost guitar solo I don't it, it's, it's only um, chiptune SNES music but it feels like a big guitar solo and it's it, it's just kind of it's almost, it's so desperate, it's kind of like, you've lost before, you can't lose again, and it's just a wonderful final boss. Absolutely brilliant. I love video games, man. And then, um, if you win, when you win, you're treated to, like, a half an hour long ending, and Nobu Amatsu wrote one of his other epics for it, which is a huge medley of all the main characters' themes as they escape from Kefka's, um, crumbling tower, and they all get their moment in the limelight, and it's absolutely brilliant. And honestly, I think all that is best representative of why I love Final Fantasy VI so much and hopefully conveys why I'd put it above 14 other games, most of which I also love. I think to sum it up, it's just, I think my favourite thing about it is just how beyond its time it is. It may look like um, a SNES game through and through, but uh, its ambitions raise it so much higher. And I recommend anyone who loves video games to play it. And in saying that, I put it right here on the top of my Final Fantasy Tower. It's still not my favourite JRPG for the Super Nintendo.
There is a game I like more than all other Final Fantasies. And maybe maybe I'll end this on that cryptic note. Maybe it's the game I, I'll talk about in the future on this podcast. But thank you for listening to this jumbo-length episode. Um, I really wanted to talk about Final Fantasy, so I said to myself, why not talk about all the Final Fantasies? I hope some Final Fantasy fans listened and enjoyed this, and I hope people who have never even played a Final Fantasy might have listened to this and enjoyed it. It's a series of highs and lows, of of strange pivots and evolutions and changes, and I, I talked about them in a, in a random order, in my own order, but I hope at least I kind of conveyed the length and breadth of this series and its overall strangeness and the overall reason why it's so beloved. And I think with that, I'll sign off and say thank you for listening to Hey Look Listen. My name is Liam Sheehan, and I will see you next time. And I'll be joined by my two buddies. And now maybe I can think of a a famous Final Fantasy quote to end on. yippee ki motherfucker!